Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Rev Desmodramically. For a reason. For yeah. a reason. Because this is the Ducati show, Quentin. The, wouldn't most people say that that's most shows? That's like most shows. <laughs> that's like most shows. This one, if you play the drinking game... You're going to have to play it like half speed because you're going to get pretty crunk pretty quick. <laughs> but we should say it's brought to you by the fine folks at Dainese. It's motorcycle gear inspired by humans. You can find it at their factory D stores in San Francisco, Chicago, and Orange County with stores coming in Orlando, New York, and L.A. very, very soon. Dainese. Dainese. Um, we're very glad they're sponsoring the show. We're very glad that we get to bring you the show. This is one of several shows that Quinn and I recorded while we were in Austin, Texas. We're slowly getting them out because it's a little bit of a different format, so it's taking us a little bit longer. But we think you'll find it pretty interesting because we were very fortunate to have uh, Jason Chinook, who is the Ducati North America CEO, and Julian Thomas, who is the MotoGP press officer for Ducati, uh, come and talk to us while we were in Austin. And they both provided some pretty interesting insights, Quentin. Yeah, I, I like it. It's it's, um, it's interesting because I had worked with Jason for a while. So uh, knowing him from that role and then being across the microphone from him was odd, right? But it was good. It was just odd. Then Julian, what a cool uh, privilege to be able to sit with somebody at that high level who is, I don't know, there's a lot of nuances to MotoGP and for us to be able to get that. You've gotten more than me. For me, it was really interesting because there we were in the press room at Coda. The GP happening around us, all of these interesting things happening uh, with Ducati and MotoGP, as there always is, really. But definitely now between Lorenzo, Lorenzo, and um, it's a theta, not a th. <laughs> it's a theta. I'm, a I'm glad someone pointed that out to us. I was like, oh, well, that makes more sense. Yeah, because you know, I'm a master theta. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's just. Oh, I missed your puns. Said no one ever. <laughs> Uh, we haven't recorded in a while and it felt so good like i felt clean and now like you've just sullied it in me I, yeah I gotta I, take a I've, shower. I've now punished you <laughs> uh, oh good allow me to yes. pontificate on that yes get it all out now <laughs> the best part is the bulk of the show has already been recorded so like i don't have to worry too much no the rest of them they're like punless right yeah but yeah, interesting conversations. Two really interesting individuals. Um, if I can Tarantino it a little bit, I don't know if it comes out in the audio. Julian's been around the racing scene for a really long time. He used to be the press officer for the World Superbike Championship. He's been with Ducati now. Oh, shoot. I should probably know this off the top of my head. But he's been with Ducati for a few years now. So he's really had a, a perspective on seeing how that team has transformed over the... And the company. Right. And the company, right? Yeah, so yeah. so very transformative years for Ducati on that side of it. Jason uh, started out in the marketing. Well, I don't know if he started, but when I came into the industry, he was in charge of marketing for Ducati North America, then left the company and has since come back and now is the, the big poobah. And so really interesting to get his insights on a number of issues. Um, obviously, Ducati's brought out a lot of new models, which are kind of filling what I would call the uh the gaps between the different segments which i feel is like an interesting strategy so we talked about that for a little bit call is the gaps the gaps there's a hand motion that doesn't translate over podcasts which is probably why we should start doing video because i look like i'm playing a piano like a little (laughs) air piano 
Yeah, but it's filling in. It's it's filling in. It, it looks like it's filling in. I call him little Dutch boy, but I don't I don't think he's no, Dutch. No, we need to stop with that. Yeah, you don't like uh, little Dutch boy thing? No, the p- putting the finger and just plugging cr- it up. Just plugging it up. Yeah, little little cracks. Most and of the industry needs to get their thumbs out, not put the fingers in. All right, maybe that's a metaphor that doesn't translate. <laughs> no, right? Exactly. I know that when I let my hair down, I look a lot like little Dutch boy. A <laughs> uh, little Dutch girl, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's right? all good. Yeah. Whatever, whatever gets it for you. <laughs> So the one thing that I, I think is of note from this is we talked with him while we were talking with him. He was talking about the beauty of um, Ducati not being for sale. Right. Well, that was the interesting thing, right? So we talked about the new models. We talked a little bit about the V4, which I think a lot of people can be interested in hearing, although Jason doesn't give too much <laughs> away. So maybe not. We'll just spoil alert that one. But but we do discuss it. And then we get to we had this conversation about kind of the ownership structure of Ducati. And it's it's very fitting for where we are now, a few weeks later, seeing all these rumors come out about Ducati, or sorry, Volkswagen, possibly considering maybe selling, there's a chance, Ducati, and they're exploring that avenue. And we've seen a lot of speculation, a lot of reports, especially out of Europe, about that subject. And it happened like the week after we had had this discussion right. with them. So it was a, it's going to be interesting for the listenership to, to listen to this, knowing that it was a month ago and that it was uh, before all this stuff. So uh, take, take that for what it's worth. It's very interesting. Yeah, it'll be, it's an interesting perspective that we have kind of retroactively. Like I think at the moment when we were talking to him, my mind was more thinking about just the larger picture, how we have companies that are privately owned, some that are publicly owned, some that are owned by venture capital firms, some that are owned by private equity firms, and how that kind of affects the business operations of a motorcycle company. And I think Ducati's got enough of a history of being uh, or going through those different types of ownerships that you can see kind of how they affect a single brand. In my mind, I was thinking about different brands and the different ways that they're owned and how that affects them. So something like really kind of high level businessy there that that appeals to me, but then to like tack on all the news and the rumors that we've had uh, as of late, and I think it, it adds another dimension, which is which is super interesting. Another thing we should point out is um, we recorded this at Ducati Island. There's a bit of noise, just heads up. Like it's not like Quentin and I in my living room where we've kind of figured out the sound thing. It's in a little trailer and there's like house music blasting like 10 feet away from us and people open up the doors and come in and out and it, it is what it is. I think you'll still find it enjoyable to listen to, but it was interesting to be on Ducati Island and see, um, well, there was a 1299 Superleggera, but there was also a 1299 Superleggera without all the paint and all the, the trimmings on That's it. That's what you, they use for the, the, uh, the class, the, right. the, the technician training. Yep. So it was really interesting to see that and and to think about that being there while we're having like this this discussion or this non-discussion maybe uh, about the V4 Superbike that <laughs> definitely maybe probably isn't but totally is coming yeah, out later this so, year. It's so weird, especially as somebody on the inside enough to it's like they are all very resolute about not talking about it. Everybody at Ducati was very good about not talking about it, but their silence is deafening and it's like you you, you can't. Right. You can't come to any other conclusion. It's like the worst line in the world. It's like the worst kept secret where it's like, okay, we're definitely not, but we probably are coming out with a bike. Like there's not a bike coming out, but when it comes out, if, if it did come out, this, the, the, like, this, totally... like this like Orwellian double speak that yeah. goes on, which is interesting. But it's, I only bring up the, the super leger in, in the context of the V4 of just, it was interesting to see like the last 
iteration, the last innovative iteration of the V-Twin Superbike on display at Ducati Island at a MotoGP event, a MotoGP event where that V4 engine is going to be the basis or is rumored to be the basis for this next generation model. I would assume, Quentin, that we're going to see kind of a hybrid between the Super Quadro and say, I mean, the, the rumor right now is it'll be based off the GP15, which I don't know how much difference you can really say between the GP15 and the GP17 in terms of their engine designs. But, you know, the Super Quadro Superbike engine kind of mated to the Desmo Sidici, you know, modern era engine. Well, yeah, so the the thing about this would be, what is the Panigale? The Panigale is the V-twin with a with a structure uh, where the, the front uh, gets bolted to the engine, the where the steering head goes, and then there's no connection between that and the swing arm, which then pivot, pivots in the engine cases. Whereas all the GP bikes for the past few years, at least since the Rossi area, uh, took the, I think, unfortunate turn of going to aluminum beam frames from carbon, monocoque, pieces that looked just like what the Panigale is. And I think that was, uh, uh, you know, we've talked about it before on the podcast many, many podcasts ago. I feel that was a huge mistake, and it was driven by, unfortunately, by Rossi at the time um, and his lack of success with it. So this this will be interesting. See, if they're going to do that same thing uh, or make this weird morphodite between a Panigale and the GP engine. They've re- and keep in mind, they, they've been making V4s for almost 15 years now. More than 15. They've been making V4s since GP MotoGP started in 2003. So, um, more is it, 2002? No, 2003. So, that's that's a long time. They've got plenty of history making V4s. It's not a surprise. They made a freaking Desmo Sidici RR street bike in 2008. I don't know why anybody's even partially like, oh my God, what are they going to do? Gotta, they make V-twins. Yeah, whatever. Easy. They'll keep making V-twins. I can tell cool. you all. Easy, easy, easy reason why. Sacred cows. It comes back sure. right back to sacred cows. Right. And the sacred cow of the dry clutch has been slayed. The secret cow of the trellis frame has been slayed. Um, shoot. Uh, KTM's racing with the trellis frame. It's fine. I mean, they're not setting the world on fire, but I doubt it's the trellis frame that's holding them back. They just need some time. It'll be interesting to see if Ducati eventually ends up going back to that after years. But I can see where the monocoque idea and making things light, especially for a street bike. I know it sounds strange that we would go backwards relative to a MotoGP bike with a with an aluminum frame, but for street purposes, for what people want for track days and you know end user status, a bike that's light definitely wins out over every other thing and uh and also simple to manufacture so i think that that's what you're going to look at uh, for sure and especially with this v4 which again it's i don't think there's going to be anything revolutionary it's going to be a v40 cotty whoopie do yeah i've got a I'll, i'm going to drop a two enthusiast exclusive on you i have it on pretty good authority that it will be a similar frameless chassis design yeah the right v4 on. sure so i think that's smart i it might be hard to draw that parallel back to the MotoGP program, but maybe that kind of foreshadows what maybe could happen in the V4 program. I think, truthfully, I think Ducati's MotoGP program is still trying to figure out that 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 turn-in thing, and I think Julian actually in his segment talks about it a bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it, a different it, world. It, it's a cool thing, and and you know, talking about sacred sacred cows, like I think at the end of the day, you know, we I hear a lot of people talk about like in elements like you like you touched on like. Undertail exhaust, single-sided swing arm, trellis frame, dry clutch, V-twin. Um, 
And I don't think that's necessarily, I mean, those, those have been kind of staples of a larger theme of, of innovation and design that Ducati's always pushed at the forefront. So when I see them kind of like innovating and pushing forward, like, oh, we're going to come up with this frameless chassis design and, oh, we're going to work on haptic feedback and, oh, we're thinking about using curves or whatever, you know, these, these technologies that other brands aren't working on per se. I think to me, that's more a part of Ducati's core brand elements than, than say having a dry clutch or. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, evolution, uh, not revolution though, because they had the same basic engine architecture from 1979 through, you know, 2012, uh, that for their, their big V twins. But they iterated on it all the time, constant changes. And the same as we've talked about with Aprilia, the V4. Um, that bike came out in 2009, but it's iterated on a lot, like more than most people do, but it looks the same. So, you know, a lot of people don't see that it's been huge changes and in, in from a two-valve two air-cooled all the way through, you know, two-valve air-cooled 650 to, a, you know, a four-valve water-cooled um, uh, 1200 you know by by the end of it for the for that engine that one engine and then they have the the uh the panagale run i mean it's already five years old holy yeah. crap there it is it's had a couple of iteration changes and i would i for one would like to see them make a 750 cc or smaller v4 like a small v4 that'd be bitching That's, right like, and but i just don't see them doing it even though i think or, that, or like a 600 make a true super sport no dude it would be off the hook but again that would cost so much but anyway that would be the type of thing that would be like an extreme uh, right now thousand cc super bikes as we've talked about recently with all these bikes that we've ridden the suzuki and the, and the aprilia man is it a lot of overkill so we'll we'll see what they come up with and i'll uh, i'll be stoked either way because it'll be something new because i think we're even though the panagali is a beautiful thing tired of looking at them tired of talking about them yeah uh yeah well Quint, let's stop talking about it and uh get to this section that we recorded with jason right on so jason thank you for joining us today and and taking our questions uh we really appreciate your time and uh yeah. Sitting with, with Q and I. My pleasure, guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So I think I want to start off with just asking you about the new models that Ducati has brought for 2017, uh, Multistrada 950, brought a couple of Scrambler models, the Super Sport, and just see kind of how you see those bikes fitting into to Ducati's lineup. Like From my perspective, it feels like it's a little, it's getting crowded. So mm -hmm. seeing how you're separating those bikes from the bikes that are similar to them. Yeah. And then just... Who's buying them, and, and how do you see the, the the market reacting to their their arrival? Well, there's a there's a lot of things that obviously there's been evolution in the market over the last few years in terms of what people are buying and what they're looking for in product. And when you look at what we've done for 2017 with our lineup, we've done we've addressed kind of the areas of opportunity that we see in the market, but we've also taken feedback from the market and tried to fill some vacancies that maybe we've failed to occupy in the, in the last few years. So as an example, let's start with the Multistrada 950. You know, we, we've identified that there's an opportunity to come, to enter into the world of, let's call it dual. It's the term that we use, dual, uh, which is a kind of on-off-road style motorcycle. And what we've seen is, uh, is that maybe not everyone wants to jump in at $20,000 with the Multistrada 1200S. Because from a matter of both price, but also the technical features of the bike, and also, strangely enough, in some cases, the power is a little intimidating for people. Uh, and so the idea of the Multistrada 950 was to kind of give accessibility into that from a matter of both price and product and its balance, the position of the model. Um, and then when you ride it, it delivers the power. And have you had an opportunity to ride have, it yet? Yeah. yeah. It delivers the power 
from my experience, in the most linear way that I've ever ridden a Ducati. I mean, the, the mapping and the fueling and everything was smoother than anything I've ever experienced. And talking to my colleagues last week in Bologna, that's something they spent a lot of time really working on was to ensure that because being a traditional Ducati owner and enthusiast, I kind of like that aggressive raw kick of power that comes through the RPM range. But some people, when they get on a motorcycle and that happens, it pushes them back a little bit. And so how can you have your cake and eat it too? And that's the idea there. And a motorcycle like that, I mean, when we build those types of bikes, it's to bring people into the brand. Because for us, we have to grow. I mean, it's imperative that we find ways to grow and to expand the brand. And you do that through product is the number one thing. So the idea is that that comes in. And then we made some decisions for North America as well. Like, for example, we've discontinued the Hyperstrata. Actually, they did that on a global level. Uh, but because that was kind of our entry into yeah. the world sure. of a dual sure. and but that bike honestly was a hyper motard that was designed and we said hey we can easily just accommodate some changes but it was a bit of a compromise kind of too much of a compromise quite honestly and uh, we saw from performance of the bike in the market that the market said the same thing so that's why we had to go look for something that was a bit more purpose built for that function um, so it comes in through product but also it comes in through brand in terms of bringing people in so the Multistrada 950 fits that niche for us. Uh, and also we stopped bringing in the standard Multistrada 1200, and we have a bigger gap now. So that goes Multistrada 950, okay. 1200S, Pikes Peak, Enduro, and so on and so forth. So that little middle piece, of course, there's a risk that you'll have too much crossover. And so we just said, let's not confuse the market. They have offered elsewhere in the world, but for us, we don't even bother. Sure. You know? I'd seen the Hyperstrata uh, being taken out of the line, but I didn't know that the base model. So that makes more sense than to wedge, well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say wedge, but yeah, that's right. to bring in a 950 that would have kind of been in that territory and probably cannibalized sales maybe from more you know, buyers that are that are probably higher margin for you. Exactly. I mean, there, there is that, there would have been that risk. Um, people, if they want that bike, they can order it and we still build it, uh, but it's just not something that we put in the market uh, because I... One of the things that there's always the risk of is more product doesn't necessarily mean more sales. There's sure. a risk that you bring in so much that people are like, I don't know what to go. Why this one versus the other? So we, I have, I'm of the school of simplification if we can, but I don't want to lose the opportunity to be able to give people access. And it was really interesting when we showed that bike to the dealer network in October of last, September of last year at our dealer conference. The dealers were like, yes, exactly. Thank you. This is what we need. Because we do all the studying and researching and everything, but when what matters is what the dealers say and then eventually what the customers say. So we've done well with that so far, and it's and what we're seeing is it's getting people into Ducati through that world. It's an, and offers an alternative to other bikes that are somewhat in that segment as well. And uh, and the most important part for me is that when I ride it, it's just it's really an incredible bike for. What you know, you, you're concerned if you're in this chassis that is used to pushing a 1200 uh, and the 1200 engines pushing this chassis around, and you put that motor in it, how it's going to perform. But I never felt ever that it was lacking. I didn't get on the open road and do uh, top speed with panniers or anything. Yeah, but sure, but that's not through, the point of that, right? <clears throat> no, it's not the point of the bike in general. Yeah. Uh, so that that gave us that opportunity. The super sport is one that's been really surprising uh, because this is. One of those things that I, I have pride in the company and doing, you know, bringing something out that the market was never asking for, uh, but for some reason they gravitate towards, like the Hypermotard. When it came out, you know, people, that was never a bike that the market said, we need 
uh, hypermotard. But when we brought it out, the market responded very positively to it. And we're seeing this immediately. You got me. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> you know? me too. I was actually just <laughs> talking to somebody about uh, some of the tickets I used to get on that bike. So uh, that's the super sport did that. It, it actually answered the question that maybe people weren't asking yet, but now we put it out there. It's this idea of, like, I want to have a sport bike, but I want something that's manageable and easy and fun to ride on the street and that doesn't kill you all day and you can uh and the people are gravitating very positively towards it and this was one of those things that i think i mean somebody was very confident in it but a lot of us uh, with both within um let's say the dealer and the dna organization we were looking at and go okay we get it but is the market going to get it uh and what we've seen immediately is that the market gets it the market is very positively responding towards it. I mean, the bike, of course, it performs beautifully, and I expected it to do what it's going to do. Uh, but that's something, a sport bike, that you can ride all day and have fun and not worry about feeling like that you're, you know, on a, the torture rack or that you have to go get your back. Right. Uh, or that you have to ride a 1200cc uh, handlebar style touring bike, which a lot of it. So I'll qualify this as saying I, I am an ST owner. So Ducati ST owners are a very bizarre crowd of people, for sure. And I'm one of them. Yeah, and I've owned one. I've, <laughs> I've owned one since 2000, 2001. Something yeah, yeah. like I still have it. Yeah. And it it needs a rebuild after 140,000 miles. What can I say? I but I I I want to get it back going. Yeah. And I love the multi. I own a Multistrada yeah. 1100 now. I had a Multistrada 1200. Awesome things, did amazing. I could do track days, I could do long distance, the whole deal. I get it, but there was still some part of me that wanted uh, a sport-oriented looking, yeah. sport-oriented feeling machine. And when we didn't have it, we, you know, those of us in, in it, yeah. like as when we worked together for yeah, many yeah. years, we'd just be like, "Well, the Multistrada will do it." In fact, it'll murder anything we had at uh, yeah. in every way, shape, and form from a sport-oriented. Not just off-road, but even even with the long travel suspension, even with the weight, even with all the stuff, it was they're amazing, right? But there's still something about being in a, a little bit of a thinner clip-on style, handlebars, all that. That, for me, is very interesting to see. Okay, after so many years of being multi-specific, yeah. what what uh, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be, as you're seeing. So it's not a huge surprise for me. I was like, oh, phew, finally. You know, the only thing for me was like, well... Too bad it's not air-cooled, but, you know, we all know. We understand what it takes yeah, to make yeah, the yeah. air-cooled work and under, understand where the future is going, and it's really tough to do that. So to have that specific motor um, chosen instead of some, you know, fire-breathing 1200, it's rad, right? And when you talk about that motor, I mean, you have it in your, in your Hyper. Yeah. It's gobs of torque. It's just fun. It's smooth. And same sort of attention to detail on the mapping and the tuning on that bike that we did with the 950 we've done with the super sport so the delivery of the power is so smooth like i never felt as though when i'm through a corner i never felt as though that i'm like waiting for that spot where it's going to either jump or it's going to find a lug and people are looking for that and like i said we didn't i didn't necessarily wasn't sure how the market was going to respond because when you look at the market data and you're trying to split all the competitive segments out you're like there's not really anything there that we can compare it to. We've made some feeble comparisons, but in that segment, no one sells any bikes in that like micro sub-segment of motorcycling. So for us, that's it's answering the question, I guess, that we didn't know people were asking. But we have we've also seen a lot of guys that are returning. Some of the STs yeah. and even some of the old air-cooled, yeah. like, you know, I mean, 
fuel carbureted super yeah 900 guys. ss from nine yeah. yeah for sure those guys coming back and going yes you've built the bike that now i can ride and it's cool because we'll be able to put panniers on it if somebody wants to it's kind of collapsible uh soft semi-rigid panniers so people can do that they can set it up for the track and that's one of the things that we're doing here at the island if you see the guys over there but they're swapping the bike from kind of sport configuration to track configuration or from a sport to a road touring yeah, configuration sure. back and forth you can accommodate a passenger the ergonomics are reasonable for that type of a motorcycle and the lightweight because i can see a lot of people that are on what is the bmw r 1100 or 1200 rs i think yeah, that's the yeah, yeah. That, for me that, that would be the that's first one in germany that's the first thing i can think of that's kind of close but it's not because it's a big unwieldy for me a big unwieldy thing not a light lift yeah no, but in the similar segment where it's sport oriented with not not crouched over but you, you're leaned over and you yeah. can take it for a track day that for me is what I, I see as like, all right, there's an in-between here that they're filling that the other brands, and I, I can't think of any other bike that other than that one right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a Honda VFR, I think that's similar, but it's even, that's it's just even, a different, even bigger. But that the problem is, is the sales of those bikes and the weight. So we did a clinic last year uh, with this bike. We were down in LA, we flew the bike out before anybody had seen it. And we did a clinic where we brought people in and we, of course, we had the bike there and then we had, let's say, what we thought would have been the most reasonable stretch for a competitor bike that's there. And everyone looked at the bike and they're like, no, I don't, I don't even think about those other bikes when we look at this. It's in a category of its own, which is helpful. And I think the other benefit that's going to come as a result of that is that it helps to perpetuate people riding sport motorcycling again. Sure. Yeah. Because this is something it's almost that, a pejorative now. Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> right. You're, I mean, yeah, you are. You're like shun or cast or only for, rocket. only for the track rocket yeah. like a power yeah. ranger yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. only for the track i mean that's right. uh, i know i only ride on the track well you don't have to like you can actually take that aesthetic and put it on the street and actually still be and not don't feel like it's too much of a compromise that's what was fun with the bike i mean i leaned that thing over and there was plenty of room to go uh which was impressive so is it a track bike Actually, for probably people of my skill level, I'd have a lot of fun on the track with it because yeah. I don't need a big bike anyway. I like to I like a bike I can ring its neck uh, versus having it ring mine, uh, and that would be fun for that. But it's really meant to have a sport bike on the street again, which you look at the market and it's kind of lost its way a little bit in that regard. You know, yeah. there's always the there's always the de desire to push for more power and more performance and so on and so forth. But then what happens when you get to the point where you can't put it on the street? I mean, we make some amazing high-performance motorcycles yeah. that legally can be ridden on the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. to really enjoy the bike, yeah, you should sure. ride it on the track. Yeah. To really enjoy it. Uh, so that's that's an opportunity. So going into some of the other bikes in the segment, I mean, the Monster 797 for us was a no-brainer. And this is something when we brought the Scrambler family out and the brand a couple years ago, we looked at that as an opportunity to hopefully drive new people into motorcycling and then hopefully through the funnel of Ducati. Um, but we were a bit surprised, and we kind of was a, call it a happy surprise, that what ended up happening is people came in and they're like, we love Scrambler. I mean, we have guys that have a Scrambler as well. Uh, but the love scrambler, but they actually want to stay in that world. They're not interested in going through the, the family of Ducati, like their next bike wasn't going to be a monster or a multi or whatever. They, they didn't care. They're like, I'm in and this is where I want to be. So for us, we got, we said, okay, we have two options or two opportunities here. One is we need to develop and grow scrambler and help this become more than just a bike 
it's a brand. It's a, it's an endorsed brand. And then we need to make sure we provide something to allow people access into Ducati. So. Is that, I mean, do you run the risk of creating like two different subcultures? Like you, Ducati's always had a strong brand. That's obvious. And you Ducatista, Ducatisti, and that's, that's, you you can, you can kind of envision that person in your head sometimes when you say that to like another motorcyclist. Now you're kind of creating this, this scrambler sub brand. Yep. Do you run the risk of like those people becoming too far removed from the Ducati, the core Ducati brand that they're, they're, they become something else or, or is it hard to manage keeping them close and, and giving them the kind of freedom and, and, and distance to, to have their own thing? That's a great question. And it's actually something that we struggle with. It's not, it's not easy because you want to create the people to feel comfortable in the world that they're in, but you also want to make sure that there's, I mean, we're still one company. You know, so we can't have these giant separate departments and organizations. I know some other brands had attempted to do that over the years. Uh, but you see how we integrated it here at Ducati Island. Like we don't, like when we do a Ducati demo tour, we don't put scramblers on it because that's, that's, it doesn't really make sense and fit into that world. So we're developing a special scrambler tour because it helps to drive people in. But when you see it here, you see a lot of crossover between the customers. And in fact, you know, I'm I'm getting a desert sled this year because I'm super excited about that. And I think, and yeah, I think yeah, the, yeah. that's the one out of all the models that both Jensen and I would would love to have the most for multiple reasons, right? So I understand yeah, that. Yeah. So that that bike is let's just call it the shit. I'm so excited, uh, but I also like to ride on the track. I also like to get on my multi and just pound the miles in and like hit twisty canyons on that. So. The cool thing about what we've offered now is that you, you know, you can put on a different jacket and a different helmet and be a different person. You know, if you want, you can have this alternative personality. A lot of people do. I mean, a lot of internet people, you know, when you finally meet them in person, they're like, they're not, they yeah, don't have necessarily no. the same bravado. I mean, you it get it happens to us all the time. Our, our yeah, fans right. are constantly disappointed when they meet us. They're like, ew. <laughs> like, wait, I thought you were, no. It reminds me very much of a time when I was at Pro Italia in Los Angeles. This is the late 90s, early 2000s. We had this group of guys we called the Testosta Herd, and they were rad dudes. And on Saturdays, they would come in in full leathers and all their yeah, yeah. Aprilias and Ducatis, et cetera, et cetera. And on Sundays, if you saw them, they'd be at the Rock Store, which is a, a popular riding area yeah. in L.A., on their Harleys, fully kitted, fully kitted, like – with the chaps, yeah, with, yeah. With, I mean, tattoos all the way, the yeah, whole yeah. thing. And it, and they took on a, a, that, and this was 15, 20 years ago. And it worked for them. They loved it. They knew that they could go into a different, they're crossing over into a different world, a different lifestyle. Yeah. And they liked the fact that they could go in between them and go to a track day. Yeah. Most of them weren't track day people, but they, a couple of them were. They looked and, like it. Yeah. And they, but they looked apart. And yeah. it was interesting to watch that from my standpoint because I was so like, are you kidding me? I would never go around. I would never even think about riding a cruiser. Nowadays, I could see it. I'm yeah. still not a cruiser rider, but I'm a dirt bike rider. And when I go into that world, holy crap, that's a different world, yeah. right? You flip a switch, you know? And yep. I, I used to be very, I mean, coming from the world of music and stuff, I was a purist. It's like, if it's not this, this, and this, then it's shit or it's sold out or whatever. And as I've, I, I use the word matured very loosely, but as I've matured, <laughs> maybe, uh, I, I feel as though that I'm, I want to have these different experiences. I don't want just to have this one world. 
Uh, and I love, I love the Ducati brand. I love everything it stands for. But I also like the fact that I have an opportunity to ride long distance. I have an opportunity to put my wife on the back and to go to Mammoth for a weekend and ride the Enduro and actually goof around off-road a little bit. But then if I want to do a track day, I can. And so the Scrambler has allowed us that. Um, we, we do have to, we have to nurture it. We have to develop it. We have, we have to make sure that we don't let it dilute who Ducati is, but we also can't over-influence Ducati too much on it, which is even like why here, when we create the little land of joy uh, within the world of Ducati Island here, it was important for us to separate it and have its own side of activations that people can engage with that are less hardcore. Because that part of, when I, when I ride that bike, like when I ride the desert sled, I just smile ear to ear and it's, and I just want to have fun. I don't need to get wild with the bike. I just, you know, let the back end step out a little bit and kind of have fun and slide it and goof around. That's that type of riding. And it's funny. I remember when I first started riding, that is what got me into it. It wasn't the performance. It wasn't putting the knee down. It wasn't the track days that I evolved into it. So it's nice to be able to put cross between those worlds so that the desert sled has given us the scrambler family has given us that opportunity. Um, but going back to the Monster 797, we missed the ability to people have access into Ducati by not having... It was notable. You felt it at the dealer. So when I was at Moto Corsa last year, I I would watch it. I was handling the pre-owned bikes. Yeah. So I was I was dealing with a lot of the ins and outs of, of what was coming in and getting traded in, etc. And you could tell, especially, I'd get in a 696 or 796 Monster, and it was not long for that shot. No, no, right? no. And I could feel it. And the people that I that would come in and, and chat with me about the stuff, they'd be like, if you ever get one in, let me know. Here's the card, et cetera. It was happening more than with any other type of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. yeah, you get the odd person. Hey, if you ever get a Bayless, let me know. And if you ever get a, a Bostrom, let me know. Something like that. But not often was it like the most simple uh, basic, what I thought was a ubiquitous Ducati. Yeah. Well, they were not around. And I, oh, geez, this is going to be interesting to see how this goes yeah. over the course of time. And I, yeah. Anyway, so I can, I, I could, I could see it last year. And that to see when I heard that this was happening, I'm like, ah, good. I'm so glad that they recognized because I was worried that that Ducati was going to push the scrambler and just say, hey, sorry. But that this is the, the the beginning. This is your entry into Ducati. This is it. Yeah. So I'm stoked to see that. That's I mean, they're not different brand only values. One. I mean, it's du Ducati is style, sophistication, performance. I mean, this is so you go that kind of sporting world and Scramblers, self-expression, land of joy. You know, I mean, it's it's different. It's a bit more free spirited in that regard. Now you can cross over, and it sounds like a bunch of marketing speak. But the reality is, is that when I ride a Scrambler. I have a different mindset versus when I ride any other Ducati, any, whether it's a 797 or a Panigale, like there is a different switch that's in my mind. But now with that monster coming back, and we saw it directly in the sales results numbers for last year. Yeah, I, I mean, like we look and we're like 600 bikes gap on one segment. We're like, we drilled down and we're like, that was entry monsters between 696 and 796, just gone, yeah. just gone. It's like somebody just went. Took it in off the, the first year of the Scrambler, it was supplanted a little bit by the Scrambler, but the second year, not enough. No, there was very little crossover, quite honestly, between the two. Uh, but the Monster provides this best platform to allow people access to the brand, too. I like it because I think it's, I call it neutral. Because you can come in, I mean, it's, I know we've all been riding since Moses came down from the mountain. Uh, so it's hard to start, look yeah, at it from a beginner's sure. perspective. Sure. But I have the luxury of my dad just getting into motorcycling for the first time ever last year. So when he wanted to come in, 
you know, immediately I thought monster, monster, small monster would be great because you come into the brand and then you go, okay, I want, I like this, but I'm riding the bike sportier. I want to do track days. I, and then you head a different direction or you might like the monster. So it gives you that kind of, it's like the intersection of the road where you can choose the path that you want within the Ducati family. And we lost it last year. We lost it. And so we had to bring it back. Uh, and I think that we did a good job because I've ridden it. And I mean, the motor's great. I love the Scrambler motor anyway because it's the same motor so that's the, in there. So the, the 797 is a Scrambler motor. Yep. Completely? Does it have a single throttle body style? Or it's a little bit, it's tweaked a little bit, isn't it's it? It's definitely tuned differently. Yeah. I mean, it, it delivers the power differently. Yeah. But the engine itself is is the same. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't. I can't speak to any technical specifications on the changes, uh, but it performs differently. It's dual disc. Yeah, for sure. You know, and yeah. the geometry set up differently, different yeah. frame and no so doubt. on and so forth. No doubt. I just was, I was wondering it from a, from a technical standpoint, as far as the engine, you do, I, a lot of people are like, oh, well, Scrambler is a small bike. It's low horsepower. And I'm like, BS, I can, I can haul ass on that bike. It just doesn't look it, right? No, and no, that's no. the thing. So when people say that, oh, well, Scrambler's for beginners. I'm like, no, not necessarily. That thing is gnarly. And it's still a V-twin. Yeah. So it's it's still, and even though it's not as much of an ambassador for the brand, it still has that. And if somebody gets on one, they're still going to get bit by the D-twin bug for sure. Yeah, right? The soul is consistent. I mean, that's the one thing that you, I mean, that's what I love on any Ducati that you ride. You know, when we brought the XDAV a lot last year, there was a bit of like, <gasps> But you get on it, you twist the throttle, and you throw it in a corner. It's a Ducati. Like, it's consistent. There's only one other brand, in my opinion, that's successfully been able to reach out side of the world, their known world, but still keep the core DNA. And it's not in the motorcycling world. It's Porsche. I mean, you drive a Cayenne, okay? It's big. It's muscular. Maybe a little heavy. But you put the foot down, and you throw it into a corner, and it's a Porsche. And, like, I love that. I like that we have been able to evolve without losing who we are. Because I, there's a lot of other brands that are out there where it's they might try to feed the market demand or what they're asking for, but then they lose the bit of their identity. And there's always a risk for us to do that. There's a risk that we're going to we're going to we have some of our loyal customers that yearn for the days of dry clutches and these yeah. sorts of things. And like, what are you going to do? Right. I, I mean, and. And I have an air cooled that has a dry clutch, yeah, and I, yeah, you know, so sure. like I get it, and, yeah. I, and I love that. But but we also need to evolve, uh, and we need to find a way to do it without compromising. I mean, we we are without compromising to the point where because it's all a compromise to the point where we lose our identity, and that's a challenge. I mean, you've spent time with Domenicali. I mean, this guy it it is in his blood. It's through his veins. It's all he knows, and there's always. He, it passed to pass the sniff test. You know, I, I tell the team on even the stuff that we do around here. I said, listen, if you can take our shield off and you can throw anybody else's logo on it and it's okay, then that means it's wrong. Like, you know, you yeah, ha it has to be true, us. Sure. Ha you have to have that. Uh, because it's something that we've built for years. We have to protect it. We have to own it. And we struggle with it. Like I said, it's not something that happens uh, easily. We get out of bed and we have to think about it every day. Sure. Well, one of the things that, and that's a good, it's a good segue, because the next good. thing I wanted to talk to you about was the, the 1299 Superleggera mm -hmm. and the 1199 Superleggera. And those are, at least in my opinion, two bikes that are designed to kind of appease the diehards or to, or to show like, 
Ducati is still a sport bike brand at heart. We're making other other models and we're in other segments, yep. but it's kind of an expose of, of look at what we can still do. We haven't softened it up at all. I, I think that's actually a great way to put it uh, because you want to make sure that you have the opportunity to bring people in and grow the brand because it's part of what we have to do as an organization uh, and what we want to do. But we can't forget our base. I mean, our base is who has made it who we are today. And you spend this time walking around Ducati Island, and these are the people here that live, eat, sleep, breathe, die. The brand, they love it. I mean, it's in their blood. I can't tell you how many Ducati tattoos I saw yesterday of people that actually have gone to the point of putting that on their skin that they love the brand. And these are guys who you probably probably don't have any other tattoos. You know, it's something that snuck away. But uh, but for people, they it, it is it, this bike is. It's almost a love letter to them. And in fact, one of the things that we did before we publicly announced anything, uh, as you so elegantly found a way to find a lot of the information out, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all, it's your job. It, we got to do it. Always but, a good time. With <laughs> but what we did is, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to reach out to our core base of customers first. So we did that. We, we went through all of our lists and we, we didn't just leave it to what we got in the database. We called our dealers. We called the dealers who we know we seal those types of bikes to those customers and people who might not put their official name in there and register it to their business or something like that, which some people do, to make sure we reached out and we touched every single one of those people to give them that experience before and give them an opportunity to make them realize that we appreciate you. This is for you. This opportunity to get this bike is for you. Uh, and it's also why when somebody buys the Superleggera, it's not, they don't just get the bike, but they get an opportunity to go to Mugello and ride on the track with the World Superbike Team. No other manufacturer's done that. I mean, Ducati Corsa's World Superbike Team will be set up there. They're going to ride, uh, I think it's, they're going to ride a Pentagali R, a Superleggera, and then they're going to ride a World Superbike Spec. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard that. I was that. talking to someone about that uh, the other day, and we were joking. It's like, you know, that's that's the kind of experience that money can't buy. And then we're like, well, if you spend like eighty, eighty-five thousand dollars $85,000, you can buy it apparently. But that's that's an, yeah. that's something that like, if I was going to go ride a superbike, I would be telling that to my children's children and, and video record for the ages. Because who, who gets to do that? And, and, I mean, what brand would offer their customers that experience? Right. And right. I, I and I can tell you that it was not something that was like, yeah, let's just do that. I mean, there's a lot of work. It takes a lot yeah. to make that happen, I bet. Yeah, sure. and, and the beauty about it is that when when Claudio made the commitment and we set it, then everyone's like, okay, now we have to figure out how to make yeah, it happen. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but it makes, and this is part of some of the change that we've seen globally at Ducati, to be able to make that connection, to have the intimate connection with the base of our customers, with our fans. And after, I don't even like utilizing the word customers. They're fans. Yeah. You know, customers are people that just buy something and they might not come back. These are people who really do, they, I mean, they are fanatics. They, they, they carry the flag for a brand. And, uh, yesterday there was something that we did, uh, that I'm, I'm stoked about because we ended up doing this thing called a Miranda which is like a light afternoon snack. But we set up this thing out here in the VIP hospitality for all of our customers where we had the Ducati executive team, sales, service. Uh, we had a guy from Mexico, myself, and we had a friend of ours that's a chef stand there and serve our customers lunch. And there, people were looking at me. I was telling uh, Quentin this earlier. They looked at my, my apron and it said, Jason Chinnick, CEO. And the guy's like, CEO of what? <laughs> Went, Ducati North America, my friend. And he's just like, oh, 
can I get a picture? What are you guys doing this for? I was like, because we, you guys have helped us make this brand and we want to, we want to have you feel as though there's a real relationship here and we are connected. And bikes like the Super Legera give us that opportunity. It gives us a chance to remind people that we, not only we can do that, because I've had people ask, why did you do that? This is the stuff that our engineers and our designers dream about. You know, they wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats and then they scribble something down and they go to the team and they campaign for it. And so for them, it drives the team as well. They're so proud and we love this. I mean, and we, Claudio called it the quintessence of Ducati. You know, you think if you distill everything down into what one bike could be, it's that, that's it. Uh, and those customers to have that opportunity for that experience. I had a guy say, you know, I have a super Leggero before I have a Desmo Sudici and he rides them. He's like, but because I have that opportunity for that experience, I'm getting the super Leggero too. Hmm. Like to, to him, that was what put it over the top. And, uh, you know, because the bike is incredible, but you can get something more. I, I'm proud that there's not other brands that can do that. They might be able to pull it off, but yeah, it's tough, but nobody really has. Uh, and there is a bit of that intimacy. I mean, you've been to WDW, you see that environment. It's rabid. It's, it's insane. I, I was telling Quinn that he needs to go because it's, I don't know how to describe it in a way, but it, it, for me, the, the most interesting part was the fact that you're at a MotoGP track and I know what the attendance figures are for a weekend when some of the fastest riders in the world are on some of those expensive machines ever created going around that circuit and WW rivals that number. And, and truth be told, there's not like it's, there's that much on track action. I mean, there's, there's the drag races and there's some stuff, yeah. but it's not like you're going there for what's happening on the track. You're going there for what's happening out, outside around the, the edges of the circuit, you know, the, the fan zones and yeah. the, you know, you showed the, uh, the super sport there. And that was an interesting thing to go see and the scrambler races. And like, there's all these other things to it. And how many people were gravitated towards that was, was really interesting to see that level of engagement and see how. And they're rabid. They're rabid for it. And what other brand, car, bike, automotive, anything, does something? I can't, I'm can't. i sure there are a few, but I can't think of many that do something like that bi-yearly or is it every other year or yeah, whatever year. you say it. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. And that's it's a beautiful thing to watch, for sure. It's a gathering of the tribes. That's kind of, yeah. I mean, it, interesting. Yeah. and everybody from all over the world. I mean, that's the thing that's beautiful about it. We see it a little bit here for Ducati Island. I mean, this, this is our... Uh, our North American WDW, if you will. Um, and we put all of our eggs into this basket. basket. It's the single biggest marketing expenditure that we have. Flat, full stop, right here. I mean, after weekend. you pick up the Two Enthusiasts podcast. Of course, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but as, See, always, you always yeah, got to be nice. selling. Good one, yeah, good yeah, one. Yeah, ABC. Go for it, right? You got to close, Always though. be yeah, selling. Yeah, yeah, always yeah, be closing, yeah, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but it is, this is that for us because this is the one place that we know that will drive everybody here and with MotoGP racing is kind of the, at the core of everyone as well. Have so, you guys thought about doing a, another Ducati revs America? Is that it's, it's been a while. I've, you hear the kind of rumblings about it, but it's been since 2001 and I was there. Yeah. I was very yeah, yeah, yeah. fortunate to be able to go to that one. And I it was, was a big well, deal. The one in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a really cool experience. I think that these days that we're a little bit more uh, business oriented. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Let's just say it was uh, that, that yeah. it was a little o very over the top, which people love. But you know, uh, you know, when it comes to the business side of things, uh, we want when we make 
when we spend anything, I don't look at anything that we do as a spend. It's an investment. So when we do something like this, we invest. We invest back into our customers. You know, when we talk about what we do for our clients, this is our fans. This is it. This is like the key thing that people come to. Okay, yeah, we also will be at World Superbike and a couple of the things. But this is our kind of Ducati Revs America. Yeah, sure. Which we didn't really have a presence like this in the past at, at back in that era. Yeah. You know, we had Ducati Island at Laguna Seca and it was like 10 pop-ups and 150 motorcycles that were sitting around yeah. there and maybe a couple vendors yeah. and a hot dog stand. Uh, and now we put it all into here to kind of bring everybody in at that point. I would love to see something like that, but I think what we'll see in the future is probably continue to obviously grow and develop this, but do stuff that's a bit more like the Ducati riding experiences yeah. that we have in Europe. We're, yeah. we're trying to transplant some of that here. Uh, and we've, had a lot of conversations with a bunch of different people and you know we're not trainers i'm not a motorcycle safety trainer or I'm, i don't know how to teach people how to ride on the track or so we have to find a way to do it but also a way to do it where it's correct for our brand lots of good guys out there but i'm not just going to grab somebody that was riding kawasaki one year and that's going to go to another brand yeah, the next sure. year because they give them bikes and leathers like there's got to be a, re a real reason and a story behind it and uh so we're this is something that we're developing right now we're going to pilot next year and then hopefully within a couple of years we'll be able to offer some of that because that's where people want that experience and this is you know i you guys probably know i spent a couple of years at lamborghini mm -hmm. and that was one of the things that we did a lot of i did driving experiences we rented circuit of the americas for three days a couple of years ago which was awesome you know like to come out here and to take customers and to have that level of experience and to have world-class drivers get in the car with them and put them around the track and then take the telemetry out and look at a giant screen and show them where they can improve. And I totally would have bought one after going for a lap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Know, <laughs> but, you know, if this thing blows up. Well, I texted my friend right before he got in that car. I'm like, make sure he has a good time. <laughs> so, yeah, my yeah, phone got to go twice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you left your phone in the Lambo? It fell out. We were oh, so, the so G-forces. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, I put you with a rally driver. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So he's not the fastest, but he's the most fun. Yeah. So and What car was that, an Aventador? Uh, it was a Huracan. Yeah, I think it? you we were in. Oh, Huracan. really? You got to yeah, go yeah. on one of those? That's yeah. the new V10 one, right? Yeah, and yeah. in my opinion, that's the better car on the track. You know, Ventador is cool when you pull up in front of the the disco. Yeah. yeah. You know, because the doors go up and everyone's like, "Who is that?" Uh, Where was this? Where did you ride that? This you is at World Ducati Week. It was. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah, right. yeah, we did like some, they call it uh, taxi laps, but it, <laughs> it was not taxi lap. It was a hot lap. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so rad, but uh, but that's the type of experiences that also come from the. Uh, purchase uh, by Audi that uh, makes an, an interesting how, how have you seen that going over the course of the now it's been at least five years hasn't it yeah it's it's interesting because I transitioned right at the, ten, the same time yeah. and kind of everything was going on uh, over to Lamborghini and then came back after three years and it was interesting to see because the culture between the two organizations is very similar I mean you're in, we're Borgo Panigale so we're in the Bologna Milion Romagna region and so a lot of similar personalities and work ethic and everything was great. Uh, but to step into a world that had been part of the group for a longer period of time, uh, the thing that I've seen that I absolutely love is the fact that it's been able to retain its own identity. Like the, the brand has allows Lamborghini and definitely Ducati to remain Lamborghini and Ducati. You know, I mean, I, they see value in, in that, but the, a lot of the stuff that's maybe in the background, that, you know, when you look at purchasing or you look at yeah. quality control or you look at these things that we probably all could benefit from as part of being a larger group, 
that's where they help. And I've seen that. That's probably one thing that maybe is directly to the consumer, they, where they get a direct benefit out of. Uh, but for me, probably the biggest benefit that I've seen out of this is the opportunity for us to have a long-term vision as an organization. And, you know, you and I, Quentin, were talking about that earlier. Yeah. Historically, over the years, Ducati has always been for sale at one point or another. You know, yeah. whether yeah. it was bought to sell or bought again to sell or then bought again to sell, like that was kind of our From nature. From the second it's purchased, it's, all right, How what do we do to get ready for the next sale yeah. instead of long-term looking yeah. at what we're going to do as a company to be a better company. Well, you and I were talking just recently about another brand that has an interesting ownership structure behind it and what the priorities of of their owners are doing. Like you can look at MotoGP, even with, with Bridgepoint Capital and the Canadian Pension Fund. Those are yep. two entities that have a very specific goal for their investments. And Dorna, they're by MotoGP, World Superbike, uh, the Spanish Superbike Series. Yep. Those properties now are a part of that goal. And it's and it's a different alignment of, of trajectories. And whereas, you know, having someone like Audi owning Ducati those trajectories might be a little bit more aligned, or at least that relationship's it's certainly different. And then you can look at public companies and private companies. And it's an interesting mix to see in the motorcycle world how the ownership structure affects things. Absolutely. In fact, it's one of the reasons I came back. I mean, I enjoyed my time at Lamborghini. It was a great experience. But first, I'm a motorcyclist. So uh, I did the job, and I think I did the job well. And we made a lot of progress in rehabilitating the brand in the U.S., which is something that we needed to do. Uh, but I didn't love it, you know. Uh, but it's not enough just to love it. I actually came back because I had an opportunity. I sat down with my colleagues in Bologna, the executive team, and we talked about the future. And it's the first time I really have, an, have had an honest conversation. And I was going to say that's the probably the most relevant thing is that we now have an opportunity for a long-term vision. And we, we had long-term visions before, but it was, you know, we everything would be thrown out the window when we had to figure out what we need to do for the end of the year, yeah. you know, to hit that end of year. Yeah. And while the end of year and the end of quarters and months and all that stuff is very important, probably if not more important now than it ever has been, but it's for a different reason. It's for the reason of us being able to reinvest back into the business so that we can grow. We put money into R&D and we put money into development of new motorcycles and into communications and marketing. And so this is the single biggest thing that being part of the group, in my opinion, has allowed us to have is the opportunity for a long-term vision and plan. And we were challenged as an organization a year ago. We went out to Bologna. We sat down and we had a meeting. In fact, I mean, it was so important that my GP trip got cut short. I was here for like 24 hours and I had to hop on a plane and go over there. But they sat down with us and they said, okay, who do you want to be, Ducati North America, in five years? And then tell us who you want to be, set your mission, objectives, you know, all that sort of stuff, and then work backwards and put together projects that will allow us to get to that point. And we had two very clear objectives, profitable dealers and happy customers. Very simple. Because if we have profitable dealers that make a good living, then they're going to take care of their customers. They're going to reinvest back into their customers. And so we have a series of 43 projects in North America that we prioritize and over the course of the next five years with the idea, and I have to report on them and present. We have to campaign for budgets and everything. That is an investment for us to be able to grow that the brand in that direction. And it's one of the things that we're less chasing the the individual numbers of sales and more of looking how we can ensure the profitability for our network and taking care of our customers because then the sales will come naturally i mean that 
I should say ideally. Yeah. That's that's the scenario is that they will come and they will come in an organic way. They will come in a way that uh, eventually will end up ensuring that we can continue to take care of them. Um, because if we're just pushing for numbers, then there's the risk that you're just going to get the number. That's and you're going to miss the customer. That's an interesting point, right? Because I think a lot of companies and a lot of brands, the main goal is is sales. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just, I need that number. And any way we can get that number is, is good. Yeah. But you see the more successful brands, sales is the byproduct of doing other things well. So uh, we're going to you know, have positive engagement with our customers. We're going to have dealerships that take care of it. And the sales will come. Yeah indirectly it's an interesting way of, of approaching it that that is that is the strategy i mean i we're, we're public about it we're, we're not making any bones about it we still like i said track the sales very carefully because we need that funds our ability to make these investments because we can't just wake up one day and say we want to be better at doing these this xyz we have to say okay well what's the plan and what do we need to spend and what resources do we need to dedicate towards it and do i need to hire somebody to help us do X, Y, Z better. Uh, and actually the best part about this is we're not just pulling this out of the air uh, in terms of identifying how we're going to improve things. We did a brand study last year and uh, this is something we hired an independent company. One of those kind of automotive related things as well that these guys do regularly every year in motorcycle business. We generally don't do that stuff. You know, you just kind of seat of the pants and put your thumb in the air and go, yeah, I think this right. is what people yeah, think. Looks good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I read a lot of forums and everything else, and so I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going on with uh, what happens in the market and talking to customers and visiting dealers. But when you do a study and you find out that the single biggest challenge that we have in North America is brand awareness. Single biggest. Really? Yeah, be the three of us sitting around this table, you wouldn't think that. No, we're in a bubble. We've been in a Ducati bubble for, I've been in a Ducati bubble for 20 years, 25 years of my life. I've been in that bubble. Yeah. So I, you have to do that. You have to get out of that. You have to start trying to figure out how can I look through a different lens to understand uh, where we're at for sure. So we surveyed a, a pretty good portion of motorcyclists to get an understanding of of uh, where we fit into the world of motorcycling in their mind. And we asked the question, name motorcycle brands that you know. We came up unprompted brand awareness, 26.6%. So that means that 26, 27 out of every 100 people think of Ducati front of mind as a, as a motorcycle brand. Okay. Now when you say, well, do you know who Ducati is? It jumped up to like 76% because there's yeah. no self-respecting motorcyclist that would not yeah. agree to that. Sure. And the other 26% I don't care or 24% I don't care. But so for us, it's like, wait, we're not even in, we're not even considered. We're not even in the front of anybody's mind. Uh, and for, yeah, for us being in the bubble, we're like, how can that be? But that's the sort of stuff that we have to wake up and realize now so this is the thing of helping to increase our brand awareness. So we have a campaign that we're working on right now. We're developing to help increase the awareness of our brand to be a consideration. Because what we found is when people do know who we are, then they actually seriously consider us. Now, I expect that the, it's not going to be a like for like. We go, get up to 70% and then the number increases as well. But we want to be a, a genuine consideration. So then we also understand what are the barriers to understanding our brand or to being being a consideration. And they're the questions of reliability. There's the questions of cost of ownership. They're actually all these things that we've spent a lot of years really working on and developing and overcoming. I could say confidently that the Ducatis that we build today are far superior 
than those that we built 10 years ago in terms of all of those barriers that we've had. But we've done a really bad job on telling anybody about it. It's our best kept secret, you know? So we have to do things to overcome that. And that's the way we grow. We don't grow by stuff on the channel. We let other people do that. There's plenty of other manufacturers that will do a good job of that. We need to do it by creating that natural demand generation. And that comes from overcoming these barriers. And listen, if somebody real, if we were able to overcome those barriers and there's still not somebody that buys their motorcycle or that gets interested in the brand, it's okay. But at least I need to know that we have overcome what we realize is some of our challenges. So. And tried, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and to bring it back a little bit, that's, that's kind of the, the, the role that the Superleggera plays, right? Like it's that this, this halo bike that, that gets the brand out there that hopefully transcends outside of the motorcycle industry into non-endemic, you know, media and yep. to you know, mainstream consciousness and things like that. It does. And that also, the Scrambler does that for us as yeah. well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Superleggera. So last December when we were in New York, we did a little media tour and, you know, we get picked up on Bloomberg and like on, did a great little run of, and they're all excited because they want to talk about an $80,000 motorcycle. Yeah, sure. But then there's also one of the barriers to ownership. I'll let you guess his price. Yeah, you sure, know? Right. So, so now we're, we risk perpetuating. Everyone's like, wow, this is an amazing motorcycle, but $80,000, it's a fantasy. And all Ducatis are expensive after yes. that, right? Yeah, everything is. So I made a really important point to say, yes, but also you can access the Ducati world for under $10,000 with the new Monster 797. So there's this, there's this wide world that allows you entry in. Of course, that's the halo. And that's what all of us motorcycle enthusiasts, and that's the, that's the poster on the wall, uh, motorcycle for us. But you still, we want to bring people in. So the non-endemic, we use that as a lead, but then we make sure that we get the story in through entry level and that sort of thing as well to give people the reason to, to feel as though they have an opportunity to come in. So. If you'll, if you'll allow me to, to, to now talk myself out of some advertising dollars. Please, please, please. I want to ask you about the rumors that we've been hearing about a V4 Superbike. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us? I can't tell are you. The, are the rumors true? Are the rumors true? Well, actually, Claudio substantiated the fact that there were rumors. Uh, and that, that's, well, it depends what rumor it is that you're ref uh, referencing. So it's a bit of a loaded question. So there are a lot of rumors that I've read what you've uh, written about it. Uh, and... You're not, you don't have all of it right, but you're close. You're, you're very close. Uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, we have to continue to develop. And we know that the twin, uh, in the competitive landscape, it has a limit. And I think that we've done a hell of a job making sure to push that limit consistently. Uh, but we have to evolve. And, you know, the days we were talking earlier about the dry clutches on motorcycles, the days of us having uh, trellis frame, the sacred cow yeah, of the trellis sure. frame yeah, and the dry clutches cows. and like these things that we were, you can never touch. We had to. I remember we put it on the 848, the first wet clutch on a super bike, and everyone thought that we're going to lose everybody, but actually we gained more people. Yeah. You know, people were like, sure. that were new, that were coming in. So this is an opportunity for us to do that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, one of the points that I really like what Claudio said is that, you know, we have, we have a history, we have a lot of development, we've been putting a lot of energy into what we're doing out here on the track today. A lot of the things that we've learned make their way down to the street. And I can say with confidence, as a brand, that's something that really happens with us. Uh, it doesn't just get diluted from a car, uh, industry, uh, 
technology that comes down and gets dropped on a no, motorcycle. The, it actually the, happens here. The guttural howl that we're hearing in the background right now is a is a one of them is a Ducati V4, right? Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's it's been the way that's been since 2002 or three, whenever the first 990 uh, Desmond Sedici was, right? So yeah. it, it's, it seems a very natural. So and and last year, actually, you may or may not have noticed this at uh, WDW. But we had a really cool area set up with all the engines. Yeah, I did see that. The cutaways yeah. and all the, yeah. There was a really cool V4 in there. Now, I'm not saying it's a V4, but there was some really cool engines, and there was a V4, and I'm not talking about the Apollo. <laughs> I was about to ask, do you mean no. the Apollo? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. But there was. There yeah. were some really cool motors, and so it's something that we have, we've looked into. We've, we're, the, the team, and I was working heavily exactly when it's going to come and uh, what's going to be in terms of the four-cylinder, it's not confirmed. And uh, unfortunately, my pay grade prevents me from being able to give the scoop. So uh, so I can't tell you much more than that. I leave that to Claudio and when the timing's right for our, for the official communication on that. But uh, but point is, is that he's commented about it. In my, and I think that people know that we have to find a way to continue to evolve the brand but to do it in a way that still stays true to who we are uh, and there's a lot of solutions out there but uh, what we have in the pipeline is definitely going to be quite spectacular uh, so I've had the opportunity to see some of the development and some of the design and even the maquette we call it of the bike uh, and maquette maquette so a maquette is basically the physical design of the motorcycle like it's like a clay model that has been okay. painted yeah. and right. set up you know i've never heard the term i apologize no no that's right. okay it's uh it's something that we use internally okay uh but a maquette of the bike is like so that you could see visually what what it may look like now it usually evolves from there um but it will be one of the most beautiful motorcycles that we've ever built without question I mean, it will. I should say it will follow in the lineage. I was about to say the really, bike that you can't confirm is coming will be the most beautiful bike we've ever seen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Th yeah. that's a constant evolution. It's a given, right? So you, you think yeah. of all, everything. Uh, sans the nine nine nine. Just pretty, yeah. uh, pretty, pretty good you're, looking. You're right? a hater on the nine nine nine. I know. I'm fine with it. I think that's like a fine wine <laughs> that just gets better with every I'm, every I'm, year. I'm poking yeah. the listenership because I know there's a few people out there that'll yeah. just be like, oh, get their right. It wouldn't be the first very, time. Yeah. Well. Well, like and like I said before, what Claudio said is that it's in the uh, the design and the between everything is in in evolution. Yeah. So uh, it's in development. The evol and it will be an evolution of where we see ourselves right now. But uh, and I think that's something that we did learn as a brand with a 999 you know when you think about that regardless uh -huh. regardless of whether you love or, yeah. or don't love the bike or hate yeah. uh we realized that it was such a radical departure yeah that it threw people off a little yeah. bit no absolutely but I, it was hard because you know that the 916 is the king so and the 999 was a good motorcycle for sure i know that yeah, i understand yeah. that that's the thing is like it, but i still hate on it because it was just so polarizing yeah and in the in the beginning i was like uh and then i got i was happy with it for a while but over the test of time i'm like oh right so there's it's funny how you you take things personally uh uh as if you're in it all the time and you're looking through the lens and you're in the bubble but that's right? the sign that you're engaged with the brand if you take yeah. it personally no, for, sure. About yeah, yeah. for sure for sure yeah. well all this stuff we do i mean all we we it's that you have to you have to then step set yourself outside of the world for just a little bit and go okay you know okay maybe it isn't what what i think it is yeah uh the rest of the world's not going to react that way 
And I was talking earlier about the fact that my dad just started writing last year. And for me, that's been probably the most valuable thing I've ever learned is to have a new person's perspective on motorcycling, on the brand and asking questions that you're like, I can't believe you're asking me that. Wait, you're new. I don't want to alienate you. I want yeah, you to feel okay sure. asking that question. Yeah. It's okay. So, but the bike that you can't confirm that you're working on, but will look good. Will it look good in the next model year or will we have to wait longer? I, I can't say yet. I can't say yet. So, you know, my, my general rule is until, because things change. I mean, there were bikes that we were talking about having come out last year that sure. didn't come out. If you asked me at this time and it didn't happen, uh, because priorities change, you know, they might have challenges with engineering or there's other things that come up and they decide that we're just going to, we're going to wait. Uh, a lot of people forget the production. I mean, that, that's, that place is pretty small, so you have to make some pretty clear decisions on what's going to get produced on what line, right? So you have to that commercial decision. It might be most people are surprising. Well, you just did all this development work and you you made this bike. Why would you hold off? Yeah. Well, because we still have other machines that we've got to go. A lot of people think that Ducati is like Honda, like the size, no, of, no, right? No, no, and far, Ducati, far right? Ducati yeah. has less employees than Honda has engineers, and, and it's, a, it's so. It, it, but everybody has this big view of a, a big gigantic corporation that's churning out and it's not like that it just isn't so i, I think you know I, I used to say that honda's probably has more engines that they've thrown in the scrap <laughs> they forgot yeah. than we've yeah. ever designed or built yeah. sure you know true. so for us it's you know when something like this if this is a change you know when we ended up coming out with the Panigale, that was a big change in terms of a, a whole new motor so it's not like we're doing a monster 797 that shares a similar engine platform you know this is not platform-based uh, production. This is something that's ground up. Uh, and as a result, there's a lot that goes into it. So like I said, it would just, it would be, uh, it would not only be premature, but it would be unprofessional for me to say when it will be. And also it's, I'm not the person to do it. You know, like I said it's below, it's uh, much more higher than my pay grade to be able to, to give that comment on that. But, uh, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm excited for it because it offers a new chapter of our brand. And this is like when the, when the 1098 came out, I thought it was a bit of a return or a nod sure. to the Superbike. But the Panigale was a leap. It was not an evolution. I mean, it was a leap there. And so I, in terms of the engine platform and so on, I mean, when we went Super Quadro, it was, uh, yep. it was no Testostrada. Yep. You know, it was yep. a whole nother yep. ball of wax. But at this stage, that was in 2012. Uh, it's been, it's been a while. Right. Yeah, I mean, you look at our cycle, uh, and you, you see, typically see that a bike is out for three years, and then there is a revision, and then it's usually another three years or so. So, you know, there's this natural, sometimes the superbike world, superbike world sometimes changes a little faster. It depends on what's happening out in the also the sure. market, competitive landscape. But at the end of the day, we end up bringing to market when it's ready. That's probably the best answer I can give you. It'll come out when it's ready. <laughs> you know, well, you're, you don't yeah. want to take it out of the oven too soon. Absolutely, absolutely. It, listening to you talk, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Pierre Tarbonche when he was talking about the 999 and the reaction that that it got. And he said, you know, he failed to under or he failed to estimate properly how conservative motorcyclists can be just in their acceptance of change. Yep. And we forget about that sometimes, you know, because you're always, especially in the, the superbike space, you're always pushing for new, 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 new. You know, the yeah. latest, latest electronics, the latest spec components, the bit more horsepower, less weight, all these things. 
But at the end of the day, we're also very kind of resistant to that change. Well, don't rock the boat too much. There's a very kind of narrow window, I feel, for you guys you have to navigate through. That's almost unfair in a way because you have to manage both sides of those expectations. But that, that is our that is a, both a blessing and a curse because we were talking about that earlier. Who else can do the things that we do? And it's because we hold true to what's important to us as a brand. And we respect and appreciate what we hear from our customers. And so, you know, when you think about a motor, an, any new motorcycle that comes out that is part of the flagship family that people look towards Ducati, we have to find a way to be able to push the envelope a little bit. You know, the Panigale was that bike for us, like no frame. You know, wait, what happened to the trellis frame? It's not there. Their guys, I mean, uh, oh, Rich, yeah. Richie Alexander one. even built a, yeah. uh, a kind of a cafe custom yeah, that, and yeah. he put a faux trellis frame on the outside of the bike to give it this look. And dry clutches. People put dry clutches on. Yeah, they were right retro, but I love so, that. Yeah, so <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but for us, it's how do you how do you continue to push? How do you continue to evolve without abandoning who you are? And I mentioned that earlier that you look at a brand like Porsche, they've always been able to find a way to evolve into different segments and different platforms. And of course they still have their I mean, they're known for the flat six. That's who they are, but they've also done other things in order to be able to evolve. Sure. And they also represent that they 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 have done a good job, and so has uh, a few of the other brands in that space, like Mercedes, and recognizing heritage and keeping the heritage vehicles alive. Yeah. And I'd like to see that eventually. I know Ducati's very small; it'd be very difficult to do. But I, eventually, I could see some of the heritage bikes and the owners of those heritage bikes being taken care of. That that's one way to keep the brand perpetual and and recognize that hey, that person with the nine sixteen is going to need parts, yeah. right? Yeah. And it might only stretch deep that deep, only to the 916, but because I can't imagine, you know, making bevel drive parts or something like that. But that's the extent that the car manufacturers go to. Of course, they're, we're dealing with cubic dollars compared to yeah. what, with the motorcycle size. Volumes. No uh, doubt. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's the tough one. But I think that's important. Uh, luckily, we have such a passionate base that, like, when we walk out on Ducati Island, uh, there was a guy that had made a uh, Jimmy Adamo replica. And most people don't know who oh, yeah. Jimmy Adamo is, That even in the, in the Ducati space. But he had taken one of Reno Leone's old bikes, somehow got his hands on it. And, I mean, it's not a perfect thing, but the fact that he's tried and it's sitting here at Ducati Island is of note, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, that type of passion is really rad. And, and in Ducati world, you can do that. Um, and so that's, that's something that I, I, I think is really cool. And that's something that Ducati has. And that not all brands necessarily have that ability, right? No, and I agree with you. I mean, we need... we. As you evolve, you always have to have one eye to the past. You know, it's like I, I'm talking. It's like when you're driving, you have one eye. You're looking in your mirror. You just just a quick glance every once in a while to remember sure. where you've come from in order to be able to have an understanding of where you need to go. Uh, and and I think that as we look towards the development of new bikes and we look towards the development of even new segments, which we were talking earlier, you know, how we bring new people into the brand, we can't lose sight of who we are. And I have confidence that whatever ends up coming to market, you know, because the design will evolve, uh, engines will evolve. By the time you and I are done talking, there are going to be 10 different changes already on whatever they're working on. Um, but at the end of the day, what I have confidence in is I know that it will be a Ducati. And we're going to have a couple naysayers without a doubt, just like any time we build anything new. You're going to have, ah, we've sold out. Well, that's okay, but we haven't because we still do all these other things that we offer for you. I mean, Super Legere is that, you know, for the person that says we're bringing too many people in from the Scrambler. Guys, we still sell 55,000 motorcycles a year. So 
it's a it's a drop in the bucket. You know, we're we're not we're it's funny people think, wow, they're we're growing really, really big. We're gonna have a nice natural rate of growth, nice trajectory. Not not we're not worrying about yeah, hitting sure. two hundred thousand motorcycles in two years. I mean, there's nothing crazy like that. We want to find an organic way to grow, uh, but we also have to evolve. And this is something that I'm gonna jump back to a comment we were talking about earlier about sure. like bikes like the Multi 950. I shared this slide a couple weeks ago in front of my dealers uh, when we were doing the tr- training in Sardinia, uh, and you know we I was talking to them about the evolution of our product lineup over the years. And the fact that we've done stuff where we address our core Ducatisti and that we have people, we have ways to expand the brand. So we call it core Ducatisti brand expansion, really that helps us grow. And every couple of years we figure out how we can evolve that lineup. But if we look at what the superbike world was, which is what we're known for, you know, that's the, when we did that customer study, you know, Italian, fast, red, that's like the three key words that came up. Yeah, sure. Like, okay, that's what people know us for. But if you look at what that market was pre-recession, you know, it was an incredible number. That market is like 20%, 10% almost of what it was back then. Now, that was artificially stimulated by a lot of really bad credit practices and funny lending. And I'm glad you put it that way. Yeah, it was. Because that's, I think that's something, it's something I've been working on as for a story, but I think that's something that we need to understand as the motorcycle industry um, I just watched the movie The Big Short, which is a great, oh, yeah, 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 which yeah, yeah. a great way of, of boiling down a very complex issue into a two-hour digestible format of yeah. what what caused the recession. And it's this idea of like we were selling houses to people that couldn't afford them. Credit was really easy to get; money was cheap, so to say. Yeah. Well, it applies to motorcycles too, and it applies to cars. It wasn't necessarily to that bubble level, but it was that idea that anyone could get into a bike. So we're seeing this huge spike in sales, this huge ramp up in sales, and maybe that's not actually sustainable. Yeah. You know, and these numbers that we say, oh, well, the market's half of what it used to be 2000, what was it, 2006 or 2008 yeah, was yeah. height of the market. Eight. And now we're looking at it like, oh, well, you know, it's still not bouncing back. Maybe this is actually, this is actually our level. And before was a false level. It was a high tide that, you know, it was like a tsunami. We say this is the new normal. Yeah. And you're absolutely right because I was, I mean, as Quentin knows, I grew up as a guy working at a dealership. I uh, started off in parts. And then, like, worked my way kind of through the dealership and ended up becoming a field guy for Ducati. And I worked in the Midwest. So I visited dealers all across the country, and we had multi-line dealers. And I walked in this dealership that's, funny enough, no longer there in Columbus, Ohio. And I had the guy, one of the sales guys, tell me, he's like, why can't you guys get a uh, one of the revolving credit cards that we have here? Because we could put people into a GSX-R1000 for 100 bucks a month. And I'm like okay, well, it's interesting. Let me look into that. So I go look into it. And, you know, it's one of these cards that have an introductory rate. You have it for 18, 24 months. And then all of a sudden it just goes through. 35%. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens is that most people, so they end up on a GSX-R1000 for eight months because they probably shouldn't have bought that bike anyway. And they crash it. And then it's totaled and they didn't get the gap insurance. And so now they're upside down. And And they've only been paying a hundred bucks a month towards it instead of probably way more than they should have. Interest maybe. Yeah. So at, and then that was what was happening. That was similar to what you're talking about when you think of the big short. Cause I watched that movie too. And oh, I yeah. thought like, yeah. I, like the light bulb went off and I'm like, this is exactly what happened. Yeah. And then it wasn't that people wanted to stop motorcycling. It's that the accessibility to cheap money disappeared yeah. because all the banks got really tight 
I mean, everybody, or there's banks that just disappeared. Yeah. I thought they did. For the first time in hundreds of years. Yeah, just disappeared. Been in the motorcycling business as well. And so, uh, and that's one of the reasons why when that happened, we actually gained market share. It was awesome for us because we gained market share. Our sales volume dropped, but not as aggressively. We didn't lose 50% during that time as a lot of other people did. I had did. just come on to Ducati at the time. And I was, I was a little worried, but I was on the service side. I was like, they're always going to need service. I'm going to be okay. But I was watching very closely. This is 2009, 2010. Yeah. And I'm new to it, right? I, I had been so deep on the technical side that I was starting to watch it. And I was like, what the heck is going to go on? And by the time 11 and 12 came on, it was really interesting to watch. The dealers going from, you know, totally just bummed out on every manufacturer in every way yep. to then embracing the Ducatis and the other premium brands uh, because, holy crap, those are still selling and they're doing okay. And Ducati had secured, I think at the time it was Freedom Financial or something yeah. like that. Yep. And it was doing okay. It was actually providing a way for those who had good credit in general to be able to get it that might not otherwise. So it's interesting to watch it over the years and what's happened. And then going now with uh, the, uh, I'm going to have to say balloon types of financing, which is, you know, the, it's a strange way to, to lease essentially. Mm -hmm. um, that BMW was taking a lot of market share from the others yep. uh, because they had that and now Ducati is offering that and that's good but you have, there's a balance with that it's like alright how if as a, a consumer I had to look at that because mm -hmm. I was thinking about alright I want a new Hyper I gotta be like Jensen right so well, I want a new Hyper I priced out a new Super Legera very affordable at the $900 a month I <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying we can go have these <laughs> <on there. laughs> that's not the balloon payment's gonna be killer right yeah. exactly but, but Once we're we get getting that, in the door right. well it'll it'll yeah, still be worth it each it's not bad it's not yeah. bad yeah. it's yeah. not yeah. bad yeah. until you crash it and then I'd be like no that'd be oh, me yeah, who's the crasher who's the crasher right Give me a anyway, that type of thing though yeah. is 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 going, and that's that's the market kind of adjusting, saying, okay, how can we get these people uh, that might not otherwise be able to buy the bikes, and oh, you can get a scrambler for ninety nine bucks a month, right? That's yeah, a, yeah. that's of note. And for me, uh, when I was working at Protalia, that was something to watch. It was like, well, there's still you still have to educate people on how that works, but it's still potential, and it's another way to to try and help them get on the thing that they yeah. want, that they lost after. Well, it's to find that, that next level, right? It's trying to bring, you know, if we're talking like that right now is our, is our normal. Yep. It's a nice way to, of maybe bringing that normal up without having that artificial peak. Yeah, it, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, the, the idea of us utilizing something like the Ducati Premier Financing, the intent here is not to do a, a bait and switch like people did with those revolving credit cards. You know, there's a buyer and like, so when I used to buy cars, I had a very, very clear way. I'm like, I want to buy a car. I want it. I don't have the time to worry about maintenance. I just want to get in, drive. And in three years, I'd like to get another one. And so I leased my cars. Historically, I do that. And I, we were thinking like, why doesn't anybody really do that in motorcycling? Especially with a brand like ours where some people buy and they want to own it forever and they want to put it in the garage and they want to add to their collection. But there's other people that always want what's new. And with a brand there's like a ours. Lot. Yeah, yeah a brand like ours. I mean, our, our customers are like 26 months and then they flip a bike is quite common. They want something new. Uh, and so they, this offers somebody the opportunity to be able to do that. And the other thing it does, and this is something that isn't really that obvious, but it actually helps the dealers generate a good pre-owned business as oh, well, yeah, that's great. which then allows more people to have access to the Ducati brand. Because then that pre-owned business stays within the dealership. It doesn't end up on Craigslist. It doesn't end up in the hands of a of a wholesaler. No, it actually stays back oh, in yeah. the dealership. And the intent, you know, I, I, I read 
probably too much of the comments when we post up advertising on Facebook or something of what uh. people say about the program. Oh, you're going to get screwed. And you know, when it's due at the end and the balloon payment and actually what most people we've studied, what other manufacturers have done, what most people do is they just trade the bike in and they've paid for what they used yeah. instead of paying more. Uh, I, I first time I ever financed a car, I paid for the car, you know, paid my normal payments. And at the end of the, the payment cycle, uh, I ended up wanting to trade it in. Well, unfortunately, the value of the car was much less than what I owed on the loan. So I had this gap. And that sucked because then I had to take money out of my pocket right, for right. it. But on the bike, the intent is for us to make sure that we manage paying down the actual use of the bike. So then when it gets traded back in, the, the remaining value gets applied towards the next motorcycle. And to us, that's a smart way to be able to address how you can have accessibility into it. Now, not for everybody. Yeah, sure. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, but, but it doesn't need to be. It's just a tool in the toolbox. Like, okay, this one, I'm, exactly. I, I'm a, I can use that wrench or I can use this wrench. It's just another one, right? Okay, if I was buying a motorcycle brand new, well, I am, but I'm going to, I'm buying a desert sled, so I'm going to sell something else to buy it cash. But if I was going to do that with my normal cycle, yeah. I'd totally do it because that's, and the other thing is that you own it. You hold the title. So you get to put the stuff on it that you want. You know, now is that going to help the value? Depends what you put on it. That's you up to what? you. That's, right? <laughs> I've seen some stuff and I'm it like, oh. Different sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that's up to you. And that's that I, I like that. I like the fact that it, it's it's uh, your responsibility as the owner instead of having to be beholden to whatever lending company or something like that. Right? Yeah, and you take better care of it, I think, too. Yep. Knowing that yep. you know, you're gonna get it serviced, you're gonna make yep. sure that you, you bring it into the dealer touches. Which all helps the, time. the dealer as well, right? Yep. And again, yep. make the ha- dealers happy, it makes the customers happy. Right? Exactly. And and I believe that our dealer network, if they have the opportunity to become profitable in these areas, they will take better care of the customer. It's just a natural, it's a natural thing you want to do because you want to continue to feed uh, that excitement from the fans coming back in. But we know it takes money. Yeah. So, well, I think, I think with there, we should probably uh, let you get back to whatever activities you have to do. Yeah. You saw me checking my watch, right? (laughs) (laughs) But no, thank you very much. We appreciate your time talking to us and and talking to our listeners about what's going on at Ducati North America and pleasure everything that's going on with the brand. So good. Uh, You guys, anytime. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll uh, make this a recurring event. Yeah, 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 Yeah. absolutely. I'm happy to do so. Okay. Cool. cool. All right. Thank you. Thanks Thanks, guys. All right, Quentin. Well, you know, thank you again to Ducati North America and Jason Chinook for, for taking time to talk to us. I think that was a pretty interesting conversation that we had in Austin. Yeah, for sure. A lot of good things coming out of it. Uh, let's take a quick break and plug our sponsors, and we'll come back and do our talk with Julian. Quentin, we got to take a little break. Sure. For a little a little commercial advert, but I, I want to play a game with you. Okay, let's do it. I want to see, and we're gonna see, we're gonna see how good you are. This okay. No pressure. All right. I want you to say the word you see in front of you. Dane easy. That is wrong. Oh, that is wrong. Okay. We're, we're talking, we're talking about a certain Italian manufacturer of fine crafted leather goods and, and textile products for motorcycles, equestrians, and bicycles. You like that? Right off wow. the top of my head. Yeah. Wow. Rolls yeah. off your tongue. Rolls right off the tongue. But a commonly mispronounced name, especially in the U.S. market. So Dainese. So, say, dine. Say, say, so say, we're going to go out to dinner and dine. Dine? No, more like die. Like, like you're dying the, the leather. Ah, oh, oh, you like that's that? Good. That's good. Knee, like on your knee. Die knee. Say? Say. Like, but say not what? See, not easy. Not, not easy. Not like easy, easy, easy does it. And I hear it sometimes like, like the Aussies like, done easy. 
Dine, dine's. Dine's. Dine. Ease. No. Die. Die. Knee. Knee. Die. Knees. Dainese. And then you gotta get like the little you gotta get the little Italian roll with well, it. You, you, the, to, you have to use your hands. You have to use your Dainese. You gotta slow it down at the end too. Dainese. You gotta think of how Mario would say it in Mario Kart. I'm like, a Luigi, I'm gonna win. Dainese. That's the Super Mario brothers. Dainese. Yeah. Okay. Dainese. Alright. So we got that clear. So sure. now so now we can we can say Dainese. Dainese. Yeah. Dainese. <laughs> All right, thanks. Later. Back to the show. All right, Quentin, our final conversation for the day was with Julian Thomas, MotoGP press officer extraordinaire. Uh, I had a brief conversation with him in the media center, but I think we hit on some, some interesting things. It's interesting to see where Ducati is with their MotoGP program right now. It's been it's been it's been tough years to be honest, and I think I think Julian's pretty upfront about it when we talked to him in the show. Um, you know, it hasn't been easy sailing for Ducati. It's over been the last a tough decade. Think about it. Two thousand seven was when they took the world championship, kind of <clears throat> out of the blue, gnarly hardcore. And if you look back at that history, that was a that was an amazing feat for them. Uh, a small small company doing that right and now after you think and i think most people thought oh well at least from that point on they're going to be vying for championships at least and it hasn't been the case so now they're still in a pretty i wouldn't say they're in dire straits but they're just kind of fumbling and they have been you know it's been really interesting like uh i thought ducati was really pushing the the forefront and being innovative when they started playing around with winglets 2009 2010 i can't remember off the top of my head it was casey stoner's suction ring was the first time we saw it and it was down on the center of the fairing rather than up at the the front of it um and obviously it's evolved since then but you know ducati was right at the front of that and pushing it and then you know we see this rule change in MotoGP with the aerodynamics and there's all this talk in the off season about you know developing new things and we see the slow kind of trickle of teams uh bringing out new fairing designs to kind of sidestep the rules. And everyone was talking about like Ducati's was, was heavily rumored to be this crazy double layered fairing thing. And we finally get to see it. And, and, and we talk about it in the show about this hammerhead design, but Ducati kind of got it wrong and it didn't work when they tested it LaSalle because they, and they waited so long to debut it. And now they haven't homologated its shape. And it, to me, it feels like they're a step behind or a, uh, are on the back step in terms of developing their aerodynamics, which is strange after them leading for so long in this space, yeah. which I find interesting. And then to see the struggles with, with Lorenzo, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like the team is really lost and that's, and it's strange because they're probably the best that they've been in say the last five yeah, years or so. For sure. So it's a weird dichotomy that's going on there. And I think, I think it just speaks volumes when you look at where they are, in the standings. I mean, Lorenzo is tied. Well, let me put it this way. Where do you think Lorenzo's in the stands? Cause I know you haven't looked at it. So just give me your gut instinct. Um, and I'll preface, this is we're right before we're going into the Magella round. So some of you might be catching this a race after we recorded it. Well, I hadn't been following it close enough, mainly cause it's not, <laughs> it's, it's like, I'm not paying attention to him straight up. I've been yeah. paying attention to Rossi. I remember him being on the podium, and I remember him being strangely uh, up 
up in the rankings more than I would have thought. So I, I can't imagine any worse than sixth or seventh. He's tied for eighth. Is he really? With Folger. Ooh. Jonas Folger. That's dirty. Did he have a crash? He had, a, had, had to have had a crash. He's had, he's had a tough, a tough yeah? time of things. Okay. Because um, there's been a couple times and he, he just happened to be there enough to be sixth or seventh, right? He was. Yeah. And he's definitely, I think, proven himself to be a head case in the mixed conditions. No. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're being facetious, but but like that's you know like it it was kind of interesting after his crash in Assen and 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 the whole collarbone thing and flying back and doing that whole that whole jamaroo, which was you know just a, a testament to his mental fortitude. This is back in the Yamaha days, right? But you know there was been a couple of mixed condition races after that, and they chalk it up to this or that, and it's like now we've had like half a dozen of them, and you're like, okay, dude, like you're. If it rains and starts drying out, or if it's kind of sketchy and cold, like you, you are not good. And meanwhile, the 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 Ducati is one of the best bikes in the rain. It has been for a long time. Well, I think strangely. that was the that was the issue in France, you know, where it's like you know they're having these conditions and it's wet, and he's still kind of sucking. And I think like there's a little friction in the team where it's like, okay, these are the conditions the bike is really good in, but our rider isn't good in them. Like we have like the worst rider for these conditions on the best bike for these conditions. Where is Dovi at right now? So Dovi is in sixth. So Jorge has 38 points. Dovi has 54 points. Dovi's kind of in the hunt for fourth. There's a couple guys around okay. him. Well, that's of note that he's not that Lorenzo's, far off. Lorenzo's pretty far back. Lorenzo's a solid like 47 points back in the standings. From first. From first, from, mm-hmm. from Vinales. So that's tough. And, uh, you know, and, and like you see like – um guys on on privateer bikes doing better than him sometimes like it's <laughs> often yeah, you know yeah, he's like well. right there with Redding and petrucci and ba- like when loris baz is out doing you and bautista well and everybody is watching uh zarco i mean you can't well, that's the he, thing, he's right? he's at alien status already i think uh at this stage so he's close if not an uh, alien so it's tough to put him in there but he's on a privateer bike right or he's on a i know it's backdoor factory but it's not the factory no so and even if it is look at first year di- first year first, first year, year rookie and he's french <laughs> you know right you know that little baguette is just running around that track like there's never like you've never seen before <laughs> that's so mean yeah yeah whatever <laughs> yeah. they know <laughs> <laughs> they know they know him and his is, does he have Furigan Leathers? He probably does have Yeah, Furigan. I think he does, actually. Yeah. Which are really cool, by the way. Just if you ever have a chance to look up, it's F-U-R-Y. Oh, no, I can't say that. I can't say that. I'll just... No, you can. But you know what he has underneath him? Dainese Airbag. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, because most of the companies that can't well, uh, so, come up with their own design or have had trouble yeah, coming up with their we're segwaying, design. but yeah, next year airbags will be mandatory. And one of the reasons that's kind of going through is because Dainese is letting other companies use, they got some weird name for it, D-Air Armor or something like that. All right, let's uh, let's get to Julian. The, uh, one thing I want to thank Julian for is he was doing this interview with us literally minutes, if oh, not yeah. seconds before the start of the GP. Oh, yeah, yeah, mad so, respect. Really cool of him to do that with us. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, much like we literally like finished it up, and I think he sprinted to the pit box. Yeah, and I sprinted out to the track, promptly lost my phone, didn't know it until I went to go call someone like after the start and then had to go do on a mad rush and then, uh, and then you, i called it you and called, it was at the security thing oh and, my god yeah, it was a whole thing yeah 
So that was a good time. So let's we'll we'll, we'll get to it. Um, Julian <laughs> Thomas, MotoGP press officer, super good dude for sitting down and talking with us. So Julian, yep. Thank you very much for joining us. We Thanks. appreciate it. It's a pleasure. So our listeners might not know who you are. What, what is your official title at Ducati? I'm the media communications officer for Ducati Course and in, in specifically the Ducati team in MotoGP. So what responsibilities do you have besides uh, corralling wily uh, MotoGP uh, journalists? Exactly. That's, the, uh, that's my main job. It's obviously sort of uh, uh, doing everything the journalists uh, ask to be done. Basically, is uh, organizing interviews with the riders, team management, staff, uh, organizing press conferences, um, helping with the media debriefs as well, basically babysitting the riders for all their other appointments during the weekend, uh, which are a fair few with sponsors, and, you know, just sort of acting as a go-between between externally and internally, basically, as being the main entry point for anybody who wants information about Ducati Course or Ducati. A lot to do. I can certainly imagine. I know I see you when you're uh, in the paddock going a mile a minute. You've seen me. You've been with me. You know what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to have just a a quick conversation. Obviously, this is a kind of a big season for Ducati Corsa, uh, Jorge Lorenzo coming into the team, Andrea Davizioso staying. There's all the talks about uh, winglets and the lack of winglets and the winglet 2.0. How has it been from your perspective for Ducati Corsa in such a, a transitional time? Well, obviously, from 2016 to 2017, there isn't much time between the end of one season to the beginning of the next one, basically. Uh, but this season, 2017, is a uh, a major step forward. Uh, or we, at least, we would like it to be a major step forward for us uh, with the signing of Jorge Lorenzo, obviously three times MotoGP World Champion. I mean, we always said that our main aim was to make the Desmosedici bike as competitive as possible and then make it as attractive as possible for a top rider. Uh, and I think we have we achieved that aim at the end of last year, basically. Um, 2013 was a bit of a difficult year for us, I would sort of say disastrous as well, um, because we, we, we were coming off the back of difficult period as well uh, in MotoGP Uh, so nothing really happened in 2013 to change things 2014, end of 2013 and uh, start of 2014 we hired uh, Gigi Dalinia who was in charge of the technical department and he obviously immediately started to make an impression Uh, we had uh, we made some progress in 2014 with the Desmond Sage bike 2015 our aim was to be competitive uh, most of the time for the podium and, if possible, come away with a win. Unfortunately, we didn't didn't quite manage that. But I think we certainly made up for it in 2016 where we were fighting for the podium with both riders uh, at most of the races. And we had, I think, a total of nine podiums and two wins with Andrea Iannone and Andrea Dovizioso. So the main aim had been achieved and, obviously, uh, with the um, situation regarding riders, rider contracts, obviously Jorge Lorenzo was one of the names, if not the biggest name on our list, and uh, sure. and he joined us at the uh, at the end of last year. Obviously, after numerous years with Yamaha, I think he felt he needed a new challenge, and uh, we are able to offer him that, basically. Obviously, the goal now must be to fight for those wins, to, to get on the top step of the podium, and you know ultimately win the championship. 
how's that progression coming along? Uh, yeah, again, uh, as you've probably seen from the first two rounds of the season, where we have to say the conditions have been a, a, sort of a little bit difficult, but uh, they have been for everybody as well. Qatar wasn't uh, uh, an auspicious start, let's say, from the uh, from the Grand Prix point of view. Although we came away uh, from Qatar with a very good result for Andrei Dovizioso, second place. He was fighting right down to the line basically for the win um, it was a bit more difficult for Jorge it was his first race on the bike although he'd done the three three four pre-season testing um, sessions uh, but it's always difficult it's always different when you actually come down to racing a bike for the first time so Jorge was in a little bit of difficulty then we went to Argentina with sort of relatively high expectations judging from our past sort of performance there Unfortunately, we didn't live up to our expectations there. And uh, again, as everybody probably saw in the race, uh, we came away with two DNS, two crashes, unfortunately. Um, so we were not able to sort of see our true potential there. Now we're at um, Kota, which again on paper is a relatively good circuit for, uh, for Ducati, judging by past results, but every year is a little bit different. We sort of had a few difficulties in Friday and Saturday but then I think we were finally both our riders were finally able to put in good performances relatively good performances in qualifying to get sixth and seventh on the grid albeit uh, let's say one second behind the top two who seem to be on a different planet and different pace at the moment so uh, the race is about to start in 15 minutes time let's say we are obviously doing this <laughs> podcast before the race and that's the situation conditions are fine riders relatively uh, confident that they can fight for let's say why not say third place third fourth fifth and i think that would be a good result if we could come away with that sort of performance i know ducati was one of the manufacturers that invested a lot into aerodynamics but before this season and obviously the the ban on the winglets as they say uh, was a bit of a blow. How is the team overcoming that? And how is aerodynamics playing a role going forward for Ducati Corsa? Yes, aerodynamics bit of a let's say a bit of a moot point. Although obviously with the ban in force now, um, everybody has sort of swept it to one side basically and looking towards the future. They um, we were the first or one of the first to explore the possibility of aerodynamics and. Last year we had sort of three or four, three different versions on the side fairings which we could modify for the different characteristics of the circuits that we went to. And we found that uh, they were very useful, the, the winglets in keeping front wheel stability and keeping the bike's front wheel down on the ground basically, especially in acceleration from out of corners. Uh, and I think we were quite happy to find that everybody else was sort of copying us in a way or came after us with their own interpretations on the aerodynamics so i think we were certainly ahead in that field but at the end of the season uh, we don't necessarily agree with the decision but the decision was taken to ban uh, aerodynamic devices so having seen the possibilities that winglets could offer i think a lot of development went on over the end of last season and the beginning of this season in trying to look for alternatives to compensate for the lack of wings. Um, we have tested uh, a couple of times a new front fairing 
but it has not been homologated yet and for the moment it's still uh, undergoing trials or it will still undergo more trials and we still have to sort of fine-tune that fairing and what, is, what is that fairing called internally is there a name no it's no name for okay. it the journalists have called it hammerhead yeah, fairing I, I, or I something like that but that's no we've we've no um we've no real name for and it, it has basically. to be homologated by Dorna. it has to be homologated by the authorities the that run uh, the fim yeah, yeah exactly i mean we are allowed to uh, homologations of the fairing uh, during the year. Okay. okay. We obviously had to homologate the first one before the first race in Qatar. Uh, so the one that you saw briefly in Qatar test before the race is, let's say, it's the first version of what could be a possible second homologated fairing. Um, has its good and its bad points. Doesn't necessarily, the riders said that it doesn't replicate the effect of the the wings it seems to produce quite a lot of high down force uh, basically because if you look at the shape of the, the fairing and the uh, the ducts that it has on the side um, creates quite an effect on the bike uh, so it would in any case only be used for certain circuits and not uh, every circuit on the calendar but as I said we haven't yet developed that uh, 100% and so it's not homologated at the moment. Do the riders have a, a, a situation where they have to adapt to the, uh, let's call it, buffeting and or eddies that are created by these wings? Are the, Is that a negative or is it something that's fairly easy to deal with? From what I hear the riders saying, they have really noticed the difference between uh, having winglets and not having winglets. So I think a certain amount of compensation can be made with the electronics to make the, the ride as smooth as possible. But... Uh, I don't think you're ever going to 100% replicate uh, the, the, the positive effects that the winglets had last year. So, you know, as I said, we just have to come to terms with it and uh, look to the future, try and develop other uh, ways of getting round uh, or, or, or getting benefit from uh, the high speeds and the, and the cornering that we, that we do in, with these bikes. Julian, one of the things I, I found interesting was Ducati led this, this technology for GP bikes so much in the past few seasons and now it seems you kind of are maybe behind the gun coming into this season without having a, a homologated fairing well we do have well, the, the, homologated, the standard fairing yeah the right. standard fairing um, the, there are a few differences between last year's bike and this year's bike but the main difference is that um, despite it being a little bit the dimensions a little bit more compact and some sort of changes in the positioning of the of the internals I mean the main difference is obviously the winglets I mean I don't think we've been taken uh, off guard or anything, uh, and I think we should see some further developments as the year goes on. Uh, uh, it's just now it's a question for us of resolving the problems that we have had for some time, and that's basically making the bike be able to corner as well as uh, as the opposition. I think that's plain for everybody to see that uh, we're still sort of not not being able to get through the corners in the best possible way that allows us to be permanently competitive uh, with the with our rivals. Why is that still an issue so far, so many seasons through now? Um, so I, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. I mean, we have tried various solutions. I think we've certainly been have improved it. I mean, sure, basically, yeah. the bike was basically the bike was competitive last year. Uh, it was able to win on certain circuits, and it was able to be competitive on most of the other circuits. I think we have to give it a, a few more races or a couple more races to see 
when we're in the middle of the European section of the uh, of the championship to see how we've been able to improve on tracks which for us were difficult like last year like Jerez and Barcelona so I think possibly have to wait until after Barcelona to get a better idea of the situation. How is the trying to figure out a bit the best way to put this how has it been with having Jorge come onto the team and changing of the rider dynamic in the, in the garage? Okay, obviously, it's uh, when you have a uh, three times world champion come into your team, uh, uh, it's, it's great satisfaction for all, for everybody. I mean, even uh, Andrea Dovizioso has welcomed him with, uh, with open arms. I mean, obviously, we're fully focused on uh, trying to produce the most competitive bike possible for Jorge. Uh, our aim is to win the title. I mean, it will be good also to win it with Andrea. I mean, let's not forget uh, that he has done so much for Ducati over the last few years. It would be good to win it with Jorge as well. I don't think, judging by the way things have gone so far this season, that we will are in with a shot at the title in 2017, but I think certainly 2018 could be a better bet. I mean, uh, I think we can safely say that. Uh, obviously, having world champion in, in your team means that... Uh, he brings a wealth of experience from Yamaha, uh, which can be used, put to good use. Um, there's no, been no major change, let's say. We haven't uh, sort of hired any more engineers to, to, to deal with uh, the arrival of Jorge, uh, but it's just fully focused on everything technologically, listening to the rider, listening to the feedback, uh, making him uh, in these early races as comfortable as possible on the bike. Uh, and, and, and just sort of buckling down and getting on with the job, basically. Is there a, a pressure that comes with, with having someone like Jorge in the team? I remember when Valentino was a part of the team, there was a lot of expectations that now there would be a championship <laughs> on your wall. I think Ducati is, to be honest, one of those manufacturers who are always under pressure, basically. Um, uh, maybe was even, I wasn't around in the Valentino years, but maybe it was even more because an Italian rider in an Italian team with Italian sponsors based in Italy obviously puts us under a lot of pressure from the Italian press. I mean, having a Spanish rider, not quite the same level, but it's a Spanish rider who's a world champion as well. So it does certainly put us under pressure. Um, we're always like Ferrari in Formula One. I think Ducati have that sort of name that... Uh, uh, makes people certainly uh, the Italian press. Uh, we're always uh, we're always in the eye of the cyclone, basically. So the pressure is always there, but we put pressure on ourselves as well. We have a parent company, VW Audi Group, as well. They would like results. We have all our results we need to do for our sponsors as well. You know, basically that's how MotoGP works. Um, we, you, you have to put pressure on yourselves, basically, to get better and get the results that are required. We were, uh, we were trying to brainstorm some ideas for questions for, before you, and a colleague suggested uh, we should ask you about Brexit. I'll, I'll save you that question, but maybe talk a little politics with you. <laughs> um, looking at the landscape in MotoGP, for a long time, Ducati was the sole European yeah. manufacturer, and yeah. now you have some compatriots with you. Has that yeah. changed... Um, sort of the atmosphere or, or the, the, the politics of GP for, for Ducati in, in terms of getting roles and focus? Well, once again, I mean, I don't, I won't enter into the, let's say, the political sphere of these things. All I could say is that the fact that more and more manufacturers are involved in MotoGP, uh, which makes the whole series and the whole series more and more competitive as well. 
uh, and uh, Aprilia and KTM certainly add a lot of uh, weight to the field and you know to a certain extent I, I would imagine that they would add influence as well in various MSMA uh, committee meetings I mean it does it's not it's not Japan versus Europe uh, MotoGP basically um, but uh, uh, obviously, when it comes to writing the rules and regulations, each manufacturer is on their own particular agenda. And uh, I think unanimity is the word that is required when the MSMA get down and deliberate things, and which are eventually uh, turned into rules and regulations. So um, to get everybody to agree on everything is always going to be a difficult situation sure i would imagine there's a uh, a fair bit of uh, horse trading that goes on in a situation like that so to, would i i mean i, I have no idea no so, sure so would I. no no I mean, but it I seems just, with with more yeah. manufacturers with having aprilia and ktm and and and, and suzuki in, in the msma um there's more horses to trade now absolutely and i think everybody brings their own cards to the table um you know we were uh, against the ban on winglets that uh, other manufacturers were for the ban on winglets so in the end something had to give and unfortunately the ban was applied um, you know we as i said before we were not particularly happy about it but we have to accept the decision and get on with racing our aim basically is to beat everybody else well sure right Right, I think uh, I think that's good. I can. I, I bet you we're really close, right? Yeah. Really, 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 really appreciate. Yeah, thank you very well, much. Thank you for your time. I really it's appreciate been, it. It's been a pleasure. Hope everybody's enjoyed a little bit of an insight into how yeah, Ducati sure. works. Thank okay. you so much. Okay, guys. And good luck right. this thank season. You. Thank right. you. Thanks, Julian. It's a pleasure. All right, Quinn. I think that that does this for for today. Yeah, for sure. This will be I, now. If, if I'm correct in this, this will be the first of a bunch of the. Uh, Coda-based, Austin-based um, shows. Shows. Yeah. So this, this is the first one we'll be doing. This will be the first one. I think the next one will be the Suzuki yep. show where we rode the Jixer and talked to Kevin Schwantz. And after that, we have the Aprilia show where we ride, we ride the RSV4 and Tuona V4 and talk to Miguel Galuzzi from Piaggio um, Corporate, who's the head designer for Piaggio. For the Piaggio group. Looking forward to all of those. You should definitely be making sure to uh, really good shows. Really good shows. Audio quality is pretty good, but they're all recorded pretty much in a pit box. And yeah, I don't know, man. I don't I don't care as much about it. I know you do, and I understand that that's part of the best uh, of what we do is that this is super clear, but the people I mean you got you were talking to Kevin Schwantz. Who cares if there's some bangs and rev bikes and stuff, right? It'll be good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, great time watching MotoGP in Austin. Good racing. Uh, the finishing order was pretty predictable, but it didn't get there in a very predictable way. So I think that's a good weekend out. Yeah, it was. It was fun to watch. Uh, still haven't heard anything about them renewing the contract for next year, which I find very interesting. Hmm. I'm sure that's going to be a rumor that's going to start percolating that's soon. Right. You talked with a couple of people about that at that time, and they're like, ah, oh, it's no problem. It's going to happen. But then it hasn't, has it? Hasn't happened. We didn't see any attendance figures get released, which I find very suspect, and I think it's tied into it. I've heard a couple little musings that Indianapolis might be back in the mix. Huh. They might do an every other year sort of thing. Weird. But that's been something that's been speculated before and didn't come to fruition. So I don't know if that's on the table or if people are just spitballing it. 
but it's very interesting. I, I don't think they will get rid of an American GP, and I don't know where you go and host it other than Coda or Indianapolis. I don't think we'll see MotoGP ever again at Laguna Seca. Really? I really don't. Well, it's such a rad Let's put it place. this way. I don't think MotoGP will ever separate the classes again like it did for, for Laguna Seca, where they didn't bring over Moto2 and Moto3. I think that's, that's donezo. So either something serious needs to happen at Laguna Seca. And I've talked to Laguna Seca people, and they would love to be able to do that and make the changes necessary to, to host the full GP paddock. But I don't think it makes sense on a dollars and cents perspective. Yeah. So yeah, that's why I say, like, I really don't see that happening. Just understanding the dynamic that has to go on with Laguna Seca and Monterey County and what that track would need structurally and infrastructurally yeah. to, to be able to host all those races. Cause like, it's not just like, Oh, we need to put in like a media center and, and a bigger paddock and this and this It's like, we need to move a couple turns, which means we got to move some earth, which means we got to do a whole and this is for other classes or you're just, just saying in general for safety in general, for like- MotoGP in general, but also like for MotoGP, the track needs to have some changes done to it to host Moto two and Moto three. The facility needs to have some changes done to it. And all that requires money and all that requires buy-in from Monterey. And those are two things that Luna, Laguna Seca has been in short supply of lately. And I think truthfully, Dorna is really happy with having World Superbike there. Yeah. I think they feel like that fits the ven- the venue fits the yeah. the paddock very well. Yeah. And, and its atmosphere and its approach. Sure. So Indianapolis, Coda, I mean, you know, Miller was an FIM approved track at one point, but that's kind of that's a tough market. Really Barber. Difficult. I mean, there's there's a couple ideas you can float out there, but I really don't see it. Yeah. But we'll see. Time will tell. Right yeah. on. Well, that was a, a, a great Ducati show. Great Ducati show. If you're still conscious, um, follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. Please. We haven't done that in a while. No one's left us a review on iTunes in a while. I get a little lonely. What about SoundCloud? People talk on SoundCloud. Okay, I, did, I, I always comment on the people okay. back in SoundCloud. Good. But you're when, waiting when for the iTunes. It the helps, iTunes. It helps get other people to see it, which yeah. will then help us to make more podcasts. Whatever whatever medium you listen to the show through, leave us a review. Leave us a comment. Leave us a high five. Tell a friend. That's probably the... If you want to do something for the show, tell a friend that's into motorcycles that doesn't listen to the show that, hey, Quentin and Jensen are mediocre guys you should listen to them and we're on, desperate for attention and we need all that we can get yeah because our narcissism is, <laughs> has a very large appetite <laughs> thank you again to Dainese for for continuing to support our podcasting efforts here the Dainese d stores are located in san francisco orange county chicago with more coming to us in orlando new york and la very very soon So thank you to them and thank you to you, dear listener, for giving us your probably like three hours. It's probably like three and a half hours by the time the show is done. Yeah. And kickstands up. Do you see the, do you see the chicken stand? Yeah. On, on the Twitters? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought it was pretty foul. Remember? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Quentin. Good talk. I'll see you out there. <laughs> All right. Okie dokie. Okie dokie dokie. Okie dokie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Why are the levels weird?
Uh, I don't know, but the last time we recorded it, it was really soft. Mm. Give me a little. A little pop? Give me like Excited Quentin. Excited Quentin. Oh, geez, Excited Quentin. <laughs> now what you got to do here? How'd you get the beans to Frank? 